Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Story time. Gather round, boys and girls, and those who don't prefer either of those categories for another weekend of cricket tales. Uh, we have many stories to go through today. We've spent many, many hours over the last couple of days tracking these stories down. We'll share those with you. We've also got an interview with Matthew Renshaw, former and possibly still future Australian opening batsman that we did last year when Adam went down to Canterbury to interview him at Kent. So we're rolling that one out again. Listen out for the part where Matthew Renshaw spots me eating a bag of chips during one of his answers <laughs> and um, the, the interview nearly goes off the rails. Um, Adam is cheerful as well in fine fettle after well, our third podcast in five days or whatever it is after we did an, our emergency Glenn Maxwell brief pod, which is in the feed if you want to scroll back to that one. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. I, I had a number of people get in touch when they listened to the Maxwell episode asking whether the Cricket Riders 11 won the game that we were sort of vaguely commentating on while talking about Glenn Maxwell. Well, we didn't. We had six to win, I think it was, from the last over, uh, something like that, six or seven to win, and lost three for naught off five balls to lose by oh, five or six runs. Uh, so you bangladesh it. We absolutely <laughs> choked. I mean, it was one of those ones you where... You bangladesh it at the World T20. Yeah. You needed, you know, three off the last over. And That's it. Three in a row. That's it. And the way that it sequenced, the first wicket that fell was fine because Dino got back on strike. Mm-hmm. So Joe Hyman, Sky's won. Dean's back on strike on 38. He has to retire on 40. So he's got to gain the situation a little bit. A single won't mm-hmm. help that much because it'll send Steve, who was our number 10, to the strikers. And in the end... Dean struck a ball to backward point, was caught brilliantly by a fella diving to his left, but it still meant that Phil, who'd retired earlier, could walk in with six to get off four balls, mm. whatever it was, and he miscued the first one and, and sent the second one straight down the throat of Long On, so we um, yeah lost three for none in that last over, and, oh, and that was that. Oh, and, and got so pulled out. It was a great game. It was a great game, but uh, yeah, uh, and we'll play them again uh, next year, the, the Omar Khan 11, uh, but I think the... Th- I want to say the four games I've played for the CWC, we've lost three of them like pretty much right at the death. So we've got to overcome that mental hurdle ahead of next year. And I'm sure under the leadership of Dino, we'll do just that. But we're here to tell some more interesting stories than this. Look, I think that it's better to be losing games in the last over than in the thirteenth over. True, you know, you could have, you could be nowhere near. <laughs> um, that's that's the the wrestle that we always have internally. You know, as as a nineteen nineties Geelong supporter, is it better to be in the grand final a lot and lose it, or to never be in the grand final? <laughs> um, someone else can tell me that. You, you know, if, if, well, you, if you're a Melbourne supporter, yeah, you can yeah, tell me about the opposite. I was going to say, yeah, no, don't, no need for you to comment. No <laughs> need for you to comment. You don't. You've got nothing to add to that. Uh, let's get on with some cricket numbers. Um, we are going to do this. We like to tell our stories via the medium of Nerd Pledge, um, which is a game, the game of nerds, a game of pledges. It's a game that we play with people on our patron page. They sign up to support the show. They send us a number of dollars and cents that relates to a cricket number, and we have to solve the puzzle as to what that number could possibly mean. It's a, it's a game we love. And the first player 
in our new numbers round. We'll have some new numbers, then some revisits and some correspondence. Our first new player over the boundary line is David Nichols, who has generously pledged $10.98. Now, Ten ninety eight. Uh, just for anyone who's thinking that might sound like a match analysis, there has been no test match analysis, men's or women's, of 10 wickets for 98 in a match. What might 1098 suggest to you, Adam Collins? Well, yeah, I thought the same thing. So I was going through trying to work out who'd taken 10 for 98. There were a couple of instances in first-class cricket, but nothing at test level. So I kept digging and got a bit funky and worked out that in test match cricket, 10 198, so 1,098 uh, deliveries uh, were bowled by one Brendan Julian, Jeff, uh, Collins yes. of ours. <laughs> yes. Yeah. BJ, who, uh. of course, has worked with us overseas on, on, on radio and so on, uh, was part of our commentary team in the UAE a couple of years back now. I can't believe that was nearly two years ago. Anyway, he, of course, played in the Ashes series of 1993 and the Frank Worrell trophy win in 1995, that breakthrough victory for the Australian team under Mark Taylor. But, yeah, only played the seven test matches. But across that, did, did pretty well in his debut at Old Trafford, which was the same game, of course, that, that Shane Warne uh, made his, well, played his first game, first test match, rather, in England. There was BJ as well uh, in the background. Of course, uh, there was that story that came out later that uh, Michael Slater had incorrectly thought that he, having of course debuted in that test match as well, he was the, I can't remember which number it was, I think it's 356 and 356? 356 and 357 he thought that that, that he had the the number higher up the chain than Julian but Slater coming later in the alphabet than Julian meant that he had the lower of the two numbers and they had to make an exception with the numbers because Slats had already got it tattooed onto his body so that's a, a nice little quirk out of that 93 test match at Manchester which most people remember for the shame-worn ball of the century. But in the second of those tests, we've picked up three wickets, I should add, BJ, and keeps his spot. Plays again later in the series uh, up at Trent Bridge at Nottingham. And this is the, the, the biggest highlight of his series, really, is an incredible caught and bold chance he takes off Robin Smith on 86. This is on uh, YouTube, courtesy of Rob Linda. So if you've never seen it before, uh, make sure you pull it up. It's Julian at his most athletic, um, one-handed down at his bootstraps, removing, removing the, uh, the England danger man. But he doesn't play again for Australia in Test cricket until 95, that famous tour I mentioned before where Australia lose Craig McDermott and Damian Fleming before the first test match. So the responsibility onto a player who probably would have been a, uh, sort of a squad bowler, but suddenly he's he's opening the bowling uh, and picks up four for 36, his career best figures, including Lara and Hooper and Richie Richardson for not many early on, Sherwin Campbell very early on as well. They end up bowling out uh, the West Indies for 195 in that first test match, which kind of set things in motion. They win by 10 wickets. They go on to win the Frank World Trophy, which Julian ends up describing as the Wank Farrell Trophy 20 years later when they won it in uh, 2015 at, at Jamaica. I guess for all that good work overseas, he only played one test match uh, in Australia, which was against Sri Lanka at Perth later in 1995, which was the debut of Ricky Ponting, of course. But he did have a, an excellent limited overs career, which culminated in that 1999 World Cup victory where he was a member of the squad and played a couple of games earlier in the tournament before retiring at the ripe old age of 30. Had to go off and host getaway when he wrapped up his uh, first-class career with WA at the end of the 2000-2001 series. But with the red ball, bowled 1,098 balls, which corresponds with David Nichols' 10.98, and I think that that surely must be it given our previous work with BJ. It's good enough for me. I'm more than happy to accept a long Brendan Julian story uh, at any time, really, um, if on the show particularly. Thank you to David and Adam for that research. 
Next on our new list, Satchmo Distel has come through with $5.38. Now, $5.38 is a number that is related to a number we had on the show some weeks ago, which was $2.70, which is uh, a Bradman 100, but it's also the number of electoral college votes that a presidential candidate needs to win a US election. 270 is the number you need to win because there are 538 electoral college votes in total. So 538 is the pot uh, that gets divvied up and that's all the more relevant given the news about US Supreme Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm. passing away in the last day before we recorded this show. So a vacancy on the US Supreme Court makes that election on November 3rd even more important than it was going to be. It's got nothing to do with cricket, but we have mentioned those numbers on the show before. Yeah, and coincidentally, US politics is where I ended up uh, on the 538 uh, website, which is a a US uh, politics podcast and website where it told me all about MS Dhoni having played 538 matches for India. All by sheer coincidence. I thought it was quite nice. So tying the two threads together. Uh, Dhoni, of course, uh, made over 17,000 runs, 16 centuries, another 108 further scores over 50, hundreds of catches and stumpings and all the rest. But yes, 538 games. And I read about all those stats on the 538 website, which I think is quite nice. So Nate Silver, the US electoral analyst, Mm. has a piece about MS Dhoni on his website. (laughs) Well, yeah, it it wasn't written by Nate, uh, but it was written by one of the staff (laughs) that worked there going through all of his, all of Dhoni's rather um, incredible uh, numbers over that long and distinguished international career. Also, 538 was the score that Australia made at the SCG uh, against Pakistan in January 2017, so Warner Century in a session, Renshaw's maiden test century, I think he made 169, and Peter Hanscom's second test ton. Kind of a strange summer when you consider where Renshaw and Hanscom, who were the two shining lights after Australia lost five test matches in a row and, and casting forward to now when they're both kind of on the outer. But as we mentioned off the top, we're going to revisit that, that conversation with Matt Renshaw, who talks about being out there when uh, Warner made a century in a session and discusses his volatile uh, career so far uh, in the baggy green. But where I wanted to land on 538, after all that uh, preamble, is with something I think you'll, you'll like, Jeff. Uh, it goes back to the very first test match. It goes back to March... 1877 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, the first man to bowl and the first man to bat. Now, you know the first person to to face a ball in in Test cricket, a man that's close to your heart. Charles. Charles Bannerman. Indeed. Uh, The uh, the record holder to this day, yeah. Perhaps less well-known, or, I mean, perhaps in some circles as well-known, but because we obviously talk about Bannerman a lot. We don't talk about Alfred Shaw much, though. Big Alf. He he was a a rotund chap. He was a fast bowler earlier in his career, but by the time 1877 rolled around, he was sort of one of these cagey, wily uh, spinners. Uh, But he still bowled the first over in Test cricket down to Charles Bannerman, a maiden, uh, sure enough. And he went on to take a big bag of wickets in the second inning. So we know a lot about the first innings, Bannerman batting through it, uh, not out, uh, the highest percentage uh, of runs made in a completed innings and all the rest. But in the second innings, Australia are all out for 104. And it's Alfred Shaw who picks up five for 38 from 34 overs to cause the bulk of that damage, which left England to win 158. Unfortunately for them, as we know, because we know the victory margin of that test, a famous one, they were all out for 108. And in the chase... 
our man Alf Shaw was out stumped for eight by Jack Blackham, the first man stumped in Test cricket. So he bowled the first ball, the first over, picked up five for 38, our number thanks to Satchmo, and then later on in the match became the first man stumped. And it all happened at Melbourne in March 1877. The twists, the turns and the landing. Thank you, Adam. Our next new number is a double header. There are two different pledges who have sent through $4.64 and they've done so for two very different reasons because each of them has sent through a clue. Anthony Radford and Jeremy Nash are these two individuals. Now, Anthony said it was something to do with Broadford in Victoria and it was something that that he thought uh, happened in an Australia A game, but it it was something that actually happened in a, a state match before an Australia A game. And this was kind of vague and I was digging around for a while and and looking for a bunch of things and looking for where Australia A had played against a a touring national team in Australia and eventually managed to to follow this thread back. 464 is the number. Now, 464 is the record for a first-class partnership in Australia, or it was at this stage. Uh, Mark Waugh and Steve Waugh made 464 together in a Shield game for New South Wales against WA, and that was the record for a long time until Australia A played the touring New Zealanders in the summer of 2015-16. And uh, Aaron Finch and Ryan Carters opened the batting and made 503 for the first wicket. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of the highest opening partnerships ever in first-class cricket. There's a couple higher, but they broke that record of 464 by the War Brothers, which which is the number that Anthony put up. And it was in an Australia A team and it was against a touring national side. And so I reckon enough of that lines up that that's got to be Anthony Radford's number. Any advances? Well, I, th- I think that I think that's right. It was actually for the Caxi, our old friends at the CA11. So it wasn't even Australia mm. A, but it still had first-class status because it was a tour game. It was a four-day fixture, which was reduced to a three-day fixture. They were trying to make it a two-day game, and in the end, it lasted four sessions because this pitch was so bad that Brendan McCullum, after taking the second new ball late on day one, realised that one of his fast bowlers could actually injure somebody. So they walked out on the second morning and just bowled batsmen. So all up, 10 New Zealand members of the team bowled, and most of the batsmen picked up the slack on that second morning, which meant that, I mean... I'm not diminishing the quantity of runs. A 503-run partnership is a 503-run partnership. It's the 13th mm-hmm. biggest in the history of first-class cricket and, and the biggest ever in Australia, as you pointed out before, overtaking war and war. But um, there, were, there were these broader circumstances on that second morning, which meant that they called the whole thing off. So Carters gets out, um, they go to lunch, and then they don't come back. After an hour, the match referee said that the pitch um, wasn't adequately uh, prepared to continue on. So it's sort of incongruous in a way that you would put on a partnership of 500 on a track that we think he's done dangerous but there was this other fact that where McCullum had realised that it wasn't worth sort of having his main bowlers charging in on a pitch that was falling apart after one day so an interesting partnership for a number of reasons but it definitely ticks that first box on 464 thanks to Anthony. Jeremy Nash is the other person with 464 with another clue and that clue was that this refers to a number at the moment something (laughs) monumental was about to happen You've got a theory, Adam? Oh, I thought I had no chance here. I'll be honest, Jeff. I, I started out, I'll show my working. So I went back and thought, well, what is 464? What could it mean? I knew it couldn't really mean a runs tally because a wicket falling on 464 or, you know, bowling figures of four for 64 or a batting average. It didn't quite work. It needed to be deliveries. So I thought, well, let's work this out. How many overs uh, constitutes 464 balls? 
1.4 overs. And um, that was the delivery in England's Headingley Miracle last year where Ben Stokes became the senior partner. Root was out from the third ball of the 77th over. And from that point forward, with Stokes, of course, famously on three from 67 at the time, he ends up being three for 73 before going on that remarkable run. Um, his last 132 runs coming from 146 balls with 11 boundaries, eight sixes, chaos, which, which we've talked about a number of times. But at 77.4, that is what I, looking at the clue, you know, on the cusp of something monumental, that is where Stokes takes over from Root, batting with Bairstow, then batting with the tail, and ultimately batting with Jack Leach, and, and we know what happens next. So I think that might be enough yep. to get us there on 464, Jeff. I'm very happy with that. I mean, I, I would put it, I would phrase it as that's when Bairstow and Stokes start batting together is yeah. that delivery, and, and that's the partnership that changes the course where the new ball comes and they smash 66 in about 10 overs mm, against mm. the new ball and get to the lunch break and, and on it goes from there. So, Jeremy, uh, Anthony, let us know if we've got there on your 464s. David Beck is our next new contender with $3.65, and of course, when you see 365, you think... Sir Garfield Sobers, 365, was the world record score for a very long time. But David also sent a clue saying, no, it is not the most obvious 365. <laughs> but, he says, there is a genuine link to that 365. Mm. David says, this is an obscure number but meant a lot to me as a young lad. Jeff Thompson's erratic front foot helped no end. He said there's also a link to a Michael Holding Thunderbolt later on, but it is an Ashes stat. Good luck. Well, we don't need luck here on the final word, David Beck. We need hard work and a lack of anything else to do but research old cricket scorecards. And what I have discovered that I'm very confident is your number, David, is that David Steele, the bank clerk who went to war, the guy who was called up during the 1975 Ashes to face Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly, who were terrorising England. He was called in to, to be a, a fighting uh, rearguard type, someone who could take the hits on the body and stand up to short pitch bowling, made 365 runs in that series against Australia. He also went on to face a fearsome West Indies pace attack involving Michael Holding. And as far as a link back to Sir Garfield Sobers, uh, Sobers played quite a bit of county cricket that overlapped with David Steele and dismissed David Steele on four occasions playing for Nottinghamshire when David Steele played for Northamptonshire, including getting him twice in a match in 1971. So boxes ticked, confident. Let me know, David, and does that get your seal of approval, Adam? That's so good. Uh, well done. Uh, thank you, David, and well played, Jeff. Uh, I'll just add that last year when Ben Stokes, who of course was the, the previous answer, achieved the Headingley Miracle, which we mentioned before, he became the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Not many cricketers have done it, but David Steele was it in 1975. He was voted the most popular sportsman in England on account of uh, his performance in the his stoic performance in the Ashes, which he um, went on to document <laughs> in a book a couple of years ago. I, I, I didn't read it at the time, but I know he was on the circuit doing a number of interviews uh, reflecting on uh, what he achieved way back when. So, yes, the bank clerk that went to war and all the rest, that does the trick for me for 365. Liam Williams is next on our list, who I think is an old friend of mine, Liam Williams. If so, hello, Gleep, uh, which was the name he went by online in the early 2000s. <laughs> there was a lot happening. It wasn't the Victor Trumper cricket board, but there was a, a lot of other work going on online as well. Uh, Liam Williams has come through with $2.23. What might 2.23 mean, Adam? 
Well, would it surprise you, Jeff, if I said I'm going back to 1930 uh, and Sabina Park? <laughs> Probably not, given I... Oh, you live at Sabina Park in 1930. I know, I know. You've got a pop tent set up there. I know. Next time I visit Jamaica, which hopefully won't be too far away, hopefully there'll be an excuse for us to go back there at some point sooner rather than later, I'll, I'll be writing about all this. I'll, I'll collate it all together. But mm-hmm. that week in 1930, obviously there's Wilfred Rhodes, but there's also George Headley. And last week I talked mm-hmm. about George Headley's remarkable first series in Test Cricket on Storytime remade. In excess of 700 runs against the Touring English, which included twin tons. Well, it also included a, a double hundred, a 2-2-3 at Sabina Park to finish the series, which I thought was just delightful. Bradman also made a 2-2-3 uh, against the West Indies. We talked about the link between Bradman and Headley last week. Well, Bradman made a 2-2-3 mm-hmm. against the West Indies on their first tour to Australia at Brisbane in 1931, where he eventually was out to Leary. Constantine, actually, I should add. But despite the fact that there's a Headley and a Bradman, I, I want to touch on Vinu Mankad very quickly because Vinu Mankad... Why not? He sort of bounced around the batting order for India, the great all-rounder. But when he was playing against New Zealand in, in 1955 is when he was at his very best as an opener, making two double hundreds, including a two two three at Mumbai in December of that year. Of course, uh, Mankad also took 168 test wickets. He was principally a bowler who batted. I mean, I suppose you could make the, the counter case as well, given how well he performed as an mm-hmm. opener in that back end of his career. But the reason I want to focus in on uh, Mankad uh, today, Jeff, is that the IPL starts this week. And as we've kind of mm-hmm. foreshadowed on the final word two or three weeks ago, this could very well be the IPL where Ashwin decides to... and. Indeed, a number of other players in the IPL decide to start running out the non-striker in the best traditions of Vinu Mankad. Uh, and I, I certainly hope that will be the case. There was uh, an email in, or a DM, I should say, in from our um, patron, Damien McLean, on this point, making sure that we saw uh, Mitchell Stark give Adil Rashid a warning, a sort of sort of a warning, uh, when, he, when he could have ran him out in the third one-day international at Old Trafford. Trust me, Damien, I did see it, and I did flip when I saw it, because uh, Rashid was about three metres out of his crease when Stark turned around. He could have easily ran him out. Damien goes on to say, part of me would have absolutely loved to have seen the fallout in the English media had he just ran him out rather than warning him. And you're probably right, and it wouldn't have just been the England media, it would have been a lot of former players. I was sitting with a former player at the time um, who went on to tell me that the the right thing happened and there should be a warning. Other commentators said the same thing about warnings. And, you know, I don't think we've completely won this fight or won this argument yet, Jeff. We're going to have to keep banging and banging and banging away. And and hopefully Ravi Chandwin Ashwin helps us in that cause uh, over the next six weeks uh, in the best spirit of Vinu Mankad, the man who made 223 in 1955. Thank you, Liam Williams. Look, I, I don't think we're anywhere near to winning it, to be honest. I mean, there's still there's still such pressure around it that, that you know, you will cop all of this uh, flack if you do it, that players still don't, mostly don't feel comfortable doing it. It takes a, a player of a, a firm belief in themselves and, and probably a a level of stability in their career, you know, you know, someone like Ravi Ashwin who doesn't have to worry about whether he'll get picked because, you know, he knows that he's it's established true. enough to do it. But you, you kind of either need to be, you know, 17 and um, full of piss and vinegar or someone who's really established. You kind of can't be in between. So Chemo Paul at the Under-19 World Cup would be willing to do it, <laughs> but Chemo Paul right now in his early 20s probably wouldn't, you know. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think... Almost any player sitting in the middle. Yeah, that's where of the that. Stark thing. I, I'm not sure where the Starks had this put to him before, but Pat Cummins has, and Pat Cummins said he'd run out the non-striker if it was. To, I think the question there might have been a great cricketer interview. So to win a World Cup final, would you do it? And he said, "Well, the batsmen should just stay in their crease," which of course is our position on this matter. But yeah, each time we see a a little example like that around the world, I think that it does 
least advance the debate a little bit. Even Ricky Ponting, as I mentioned, I think last week, talked to uh, Ashwin on his YouTube channel about the idea of run penalties being included and so on. And well, that's at mm. least a little bit of a step in the right direction compared to uh, you know where we were when Joss Butler got himself into trouble at the IPL last year and the amount of hand wringing over that. And it does predominantly come from former players. And that's not to say I don't respect the position of former players when they advance it, but I think it mostly comes down to the idea that players don't tend to be too intimately engaged with the laws of the game. That's just the way it is. It's almost a joke, isn't it? The people who know the least about the laws tend to be those who are excellent at cricket. So uh, maybe it's... <laughs> well, the, the culture. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to You don't know need to know the laws. If, you, if you're a brilliant player, you're a brilliant player. Why do you need to know every um, last subclause and so on? But mm. anyway, it's, it's a debate we've uh, returned to time and time again on, on the final word. And, and hopefully, uh, Ravi Chandwin Ashwin will give us reason to return to it again at some point over the next six weeks. Well, I, I can say that for sure that the English press would have gone absolutely feral if that had happened. If you remember <laughs> the, um, the, there's no other word for it. I have to say, brouhaha, um, a few years ago when when Stark dismissed Ben Stokes for obstructing oh, yeah. the field, yeah. when when Stark picked up a ball in his follow through and threw it at the stumps, and and Stokes palmed the ball away from the stumps, and the you know they, it was feral over there. Every press outlet was it was a unified front for once. They were all saying, oh, there's a provision for defending yourself, um, even though Stokes was reaching metres away from his body to to hit that ball. It was a reflex action, but it wasn't a self-defensive action. It was the only time, Jeff. I think it was the only time where you and I looked like we were Australian like barrackers. And I don't mean like yeah. where we looked parochial in our coverage because we both arrived mm. at the view independently of each other. I think we were doing different jobs that day that it was ridiculous yeah. the treatment that Stark and Smith were getting and we, we wrote accordingly. And I think I went on... I think I got dragged up to the TMS box to duke it out with Michael Vaughan, if I recall correctly, because Vaughan had a different view, and they said, "Right, come upstairs and do the other bit." Yeah. I'm like, "All right, I'm very happy to on this occasion. <laughs> Not usually happy to play that play that role, but was on the, on that day." Well, look, it's it's about the laws; it's not about the teams. No. Uh, that is a, a very long way around from the start of Liam Williams' number. Our last new number comes from Wayne Holloway. Uh, thank you, Wayne. That number is one dollar forty three one four three, and Wayne sent through a couple of clues. The first clue was dancing on the ceiling, which I assume is a Lionel Richie reference. Who didn't play cricket, as far as I know. Uh, the second clue is my name is not what my mother named me. There is a whole ground, not just a stand, named after me. What might you think about that, Adam? Well, I, I thought the same thing as you to begin with, dancing on the ceiling, Lionel Richie. So a ground related to Lionel or Richie, couldn't quite get there on that front. I had a look at Lionel's. I thought maybe there might be a link from the, the first name. There was a Lionel Charles Hamilton Pallerier who took 143 first-class wickets. <laughs> between 1890 and 1902 for Oxford and Somerset. He wasn't really a bowler. He did take one, four, three wickets, which is the, the, link I'm, the tangential link I'm going with, but he played two test matches against Australia in 1902, didn't bowl in those. The Times once described him as the most beautiful batsman of all time, which is quite the claim, really. Um, but yeah, 16,000 first-class runs, 2,700s, but I doubt it's that because there's no, as best I can tell, no grounds named after Lionel Charles Hamilton Pallerier. <laughs> Pallerier, how would you say? That's a beautiful name. Close enough. That's a, that's a, yeah, I think that sounds good. Close um, enough. It's, it's a, he's up there with Hoffney, Hobart, Heinz, Johnson. Exactly, from exactly. Well, it kind of had me in the same... I was thinking middle names and I was thinking, well, grounds named after. Then I kind of went mm -hmm. Lionel Richie, Viv Richards, Viv Richards Stadium. Okay. 
also had yep, multiple there is little at every names. Stadium. He didn't make 143 in any format of the game, though. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm stuffed there. It can't be. Then I kept looking a bit deeper, though. If you always go one level deeper, one level deeper, you mm-hmm. can often find what it's you It's like need. Inception. You've that's got right. to get to the base and blow some stuff up. Yes, that's right. You've just got to get deep into the deep into, into the dream, into of, the the dream, dream of it dream. all. That's right. And a really dreamy moment in 2012 was tangentially linked to Viv Richards. Uh, that was at Birmingham. In an otherwise shit-ass test match where uh, the Windies in England were rained off for, I don't know, three of the five days. But when the Windies did bat, Dinesh Ramden, the Windies keeper, put on 143 with Tino Bess mm-hmm. for the 10th wicket, which is one of the is highest... That, is that the Mind the Windows partnership? No, that's the, that's the tour before. That was uh, when Flintoff was still playing. We're, we're another tour on from this, and Tino Best is a more senior player in the team, but still batting 11. Ends up getting out for 95. The partnership's broken on 143. But what, what Tino Best did enable was Dinesh Ramden to make it to 100. He'd been under a lot of pressure in that series to keep his spot. And what does he do? He pulls out of his pocket the sign, which he holds in the air saying, Yeah, Viv, talk nah, which has been memed a million times since. I think it was one of the mm-hmm. first kind of proper cricket memes uh, going back to 2012. So, yeah, Viv, talk nah. And Tino Best making 95, which was the highest score for a test number 11 when recorded. But 12 months on, not even 12 months on, Ashton Agar added four further runs to that when he was out for 99. Or was he out for 98, Ashton Agar? Three further, 98. Three, 98, sorry. So, yes, in consecutive years, England had conceded the highest score to a number 11. Uh, Tino, followed by <laughs> Ashton. And that's as good as I can do, going from Lionel Richie to Viv Richards to, yeah, Viv Torknar to Tino Best and Dinesh Ramden putting on 143. Wayne Holloway, am I right? Am I wrong? At least you've got to respect the effort that's gone into getting to that stage. That's beautiful, Adam. That really is. <laughs> um, there, there's nothing else that came near it. I did look at a bunch of Richie Richards and stuff for the Richie uh, connection, but there was nothing there. And that that's perfect. Yeah, Viv Talknar, 143. Wayne, <laughs> thank you. That brings us to the end of our new numbers on this show. If you'd like to send us a number and get on the show or on the earlier in the week program for Nerd Pledge, you just go to patron.com slash the final word. And in doing so, you can help us keep making this ridiculous program, which we enjoy very much. And <laughs> apparently enough of you do as well. Let's revisit some numbers that we didn't get right in previous weeks because we're not perfect. We've never claimed to be. We've, we have our flaws. Uh, are, we, are we not men? If you prick us, do we not bleed and probably get quite annoyed with you? Don't prick us. What was that for? Alex KP, who may or may not be Kevin Peterson in a cunning disguise, uh, had a number of $1.14 a couple of weeks ago, one one four. And uh, we didn't get it right. I can't remember what we guessed it was, but uh, Alex KP followed up to say it's a career total of something. And uh, and this player will almost certainly be the last to join this club. So that makes you think about, okay, times when players played a lot more of certain forms of cricket than they do now. Mark Ramprakash is the most recent player to make a hundred first class hundreds and finished up with 114 of them finishing up what 10 years or so ago when he would have made that hundredth ton that seems pretty likely to be it adam 
Yeah, and so much build-up before Ramps got to his 100-100. I think there was kind of, as it's been explained to me, a group of touring journalists who would go from county ground to county ground through the back half of the 2008 season. He eventually got there in, in August, the 2nd of August 2008, at, at, at Headingley against Yorkshire. The 25th man to make it to 100-100s in first-class cricket. One of a range of Surrey players. Of course, Ramps went across the river. He played um, for Middlesex, then moved to Surrey. But as far as Surrey are concerned, Hobbs made 199. Sandham, the aforementioned, 107. Tom Haywood, 104. John Edridge, 103. But... Um, uh, but Rampra Cashew really got busy after his... Well, he was busy before, but especially busy for Surrey after his test career ended in 2002. He made in excess of 2,000 runs in 2006 and then 2007. Couldn't get himself an England recall because he was you know, closer to 40 than he was 35 at that stage, having, of course, debuted all the way back in 1988. But, yes, eventually got to uh, the 100th 100. But he cracked on too. I quite like the fact that after arriving at that mark in, you know, probably 38 or 39 years of age. He played until 2012 and made 14 more tons, bless him. Uh, so he finishes with 114. And I think that Alex KP is right that no one else will, will reach that mark. It would take... I mean, Justin Langer got into the mid-80s. Chris Rogers made 76. Uh, you know, I had a look at Alistair Cook just out of curiosity to see how close he was, only on 66. And Cook will play next year, but I suppose a lot would have needed to have gone right after his international career. He would have needed to have wanted to have played till he was like 42 or 43 or something like that, and he's not going to be doing mm-hmm. that. So... I just don't see anyone in the modern game getting to that mark because with central contracts, I mean, players just don't get that many opportunities to to play as much first-class cricket as they used to over here and playing county cricket for an entire season with all this winter touring that that happens these days, all the white ball options that are around the world, it, it seems unlikely. However, if you want to see another milestone that's kind of like that, not quite the same, not quite as prestigious, uh, but still significant. James Anderson's now on 975 first-class wickets. So, yes, he's taken 600 at test level, but he's 25 away from getting to 1,000. And you have to say that unless something went dramatically wrong for Jimmy now, I know he's got ambitions of playing through until the next Ashes and who, who knows how long, but you'd have to think he's a he's a, a lock to get to 1,000 first-class wickets. So we may not ever see mm. 100 hundreds again, but we can hopefully take some satisfaction in what Anderson could do with the ball. Thank you, Alex KP. How many first-class matches would an English player play in a county season? Well, yeah, now they well, there's 14 rounds, but I just don't. Okay. When there used to be when they were playing everyone in the competition, uh, when they were when there were 17 counties. So before Durham came in, uh, you know, you'd play everyone, and then they changed it and reconfigured the competition. If you want to go back a long way, they used to play. You know, when you include tour games against other nations, county games, well, Mm -hmm. first-class games against universities and whatever. You could play up to 30, 32. Uh, Now, you know, if you're lucky, if you throw in a university game, you might get to 15. Yeah, or it's sort of touring against against the touring Australians or whatever. So say say Alistair Cook had 14 Champo games and and an extra and made twin tons in all of them. He could make 30 hundreds in the season uh, (laughs) and then would be on 96 and then might push on. So it's possible. You know, you don't want to rule it out. What what would have needed to have happened? I mean... in order for it to have been realistic, had he said at the end of his test career, no, I'm going to hunt 100 hundreds, he retired at what, 34 or something? Four, 34. 34. Had he said, I'm going to play now and I'm going to really dig in. He loves playing at Essex, loves that dressing room and so on and made a decision to play. But instead he signed a three-year deal and made it pretty clear he's going to go on and be a full-time commentator after that. Fair enough. I mean, he's played a lot of cricket. He's entitled to do something else with his life. But um, yeah, that, that it'll, it'll remain elusive. I mean, mm-hmm. the... Yeah, Justin Langer, when he pulled the pin 
about, what, three years after his international career had finished. I think he got to 86, 85, 86 maybe. And then Chris Rogers was already 38, I think 37 or 38 uh, by the time he finished up uh, for Australia and went on and played Mm -hmm. that last year with Somerset and scored twin tons in his final game, which took him to 75 and then 76. But yeah, unfortunately it seems unlikely, but but at least we had ramps as the last man over the line, the 25th. We did a revisiting the one dollar seven one oh seven from David <laughs> Brooks. Uh, this was to do with he said to do with a, a game a hundred scored in a first class game at the Adelaide Oval. We went back. Well, Adam went back in detail to a scorecard from a Shield game in nineteen twenty nine. David says this was not correct. Second clue is that the one oh seven was scored in the second innings after this player made a hundred in the first innings as well. What have you got? Oh, I've made a blue here. I'm sorry, David. We're going to have to do this a third time. However, what I can can tell you is if you're looking at 107s made in the second innings of a test match after completing a century in the first well come on down George Headley we're back to where we began Headley made the first twin tons at Lords in a test match of course that's not Adelaide is it but um, if you want to go to 1939 just before the war that series they snuck in before World War II started um, the first match of that three-game stoush was at Lords, and Headley made 106 in the first innings and 107 in the second innings. So I only saw the 107 second innings bit. I perhaps overlooked the Adelaide Oval part of the equation, but it happened. And the uh, fact that we started with Headley, and I, I, I was, you know, sometimes I get drawn into the narrative of, of, a, of a story time episode, and I yep. and I see one thing and I want to end there, and I got a bit carried mm-hmm. away. But hey, if you if you're interested to know after. Headley's first 12 test matches against England, he averaged 84 and made eight centuries, including that unbeaten 270 that you talked about before, which also happened to be at Sabina Park five years later in 1935. <laughs> so can I just be clear on something? Yes. For our listeners, George Headley, the, the great West Indies batsman, career interrupted by the Second World War, only managed to play 22 test matches, made 10 test centuries. In the last... Eight days of recording this podcast, Adam. You have covered four of his ten <laughs> test centuries. Well, well, five, five, arguably, because we touched on three last week and we've done uh, two today. Well, so, true, so there's two here. Well, argue, yeah. Even three, if you want to count the two seventy I just mentioned there. So, yeah, we, we've uh, we've gone around and around on George Headley. Uh, in a way, I wish he, <laughs> I wish he had have retired really at that point. You know, had he not returned after the war, when his career did uh, diminish as far as that that amazing record. He still averaged 61, let's not get carried away, but I think he averaged something like 75 until the war. So as far as where he and Bradman sat, they were so far above anyone else, it didn't even matter who was next. So, But he did come back and continued playing until 1954, I think was when he played his final test match. So he had a career which extended until he was 45. He only played a couple of test matches. I think he played three tests after the war, maybe, out of his 22. Um, oh, right. He's still got... Yeah, I mean, it, it, most of it was it was up until 1939, but okay. he's he's still he's still second to Bradman on that that list that I like to keep of the ratios of um, the number of Test matches required per hundred scored. Bradman is I think 1.79 Tests per hundred, um, and Headley's 2.2. Mm. Um, Smith was pretty close behind Headley at one stage, but has drifted back a bit to the the, the sort of mid you know two point. 
6 or 2.8 or something thereabouts. I'm not sure exactly where he is at the moment. So that, David Brooks, is is where we've come to, but it's going to have to be something else because Adam will have to get back into the Shield um, scorecards from Adelaide Oval and, and calculate that one for next week. I can't <laughs> um, wait. Before you write to us. I'll get back in the minds and back in the... Back in the uh Back in the Cricket Archive pages, and I'll find your number. Do not worry. I'll be there next week, David Brooks. Now, our last revisit for this week, I'm very pleased to say that we will be speaking about this number. Jean Valjean, I've tracked you down. At last, Valjean, we see each other playing my my white whale, my Rob O'Neill's number that we have been pursuing for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was $5.57 to start with. We went through all kinds of permutations, five for 57s, wickets falling with the fifth wicket at 57, so on and so on and so on. This is where I've narrowed it down to because Rob's kept giving me hints, but they haven't necessarily helped because they've just made it more confusing because they're more specific. But I knew that it involved one test match, a performance in one test match, and I knew it involved either Pakistan or the West Indies, and I knew that it involved a player who had toured Australia multiple times in the early 80s. And it's honestly fairly obvious in the end, now that I've figured it out, I feel like I should have got it weeks ago. However, here it is. $5.57 is 557. 557 is the number of minutes battered by the Pakistani opener at the time, Mudassar Nazar, who made the slowest ever test century from 557 minutes battered, a record that stands to this day and is unlikely ever to be broken. Please, Rob, tell me that's it. (laughs) Tell me I'm right. Tell me I've been a good boy Uh, and, and let me never think of this again. So good. Well done, Rob, for causing Jess so much grief uh, over the last few weeks and nicely picked up. You've got there at last. In in that match, they batted in, into the third day, I'm pretty sure. Uh, was Bari, the keeper, was the, the captain at the time, and uh, it was England and Pakistan, and they just batted and batted and batted. But you want to know the best thing about that terrible, terrible slow hundred, Adam? Please. Jeff Boycott came out for England in the second innings and tried to break the record <laughs> immediately. <laughs> he, he made 67, I think, before he got out, but that was off something like 300 minutes at the crease. And he was actually scoring at a lower rate of runs per hour. <laughs> than Mudassar Nazar at the time that he got out. So Boycott was like, nobody's going to outdo my style. I'm going to have this, but didn't quite get to the three figures. That definitely tallies, doesn't it, that Boycott would see something like that go and go, I will go one better than you, stubborn bastard. (laughs) Uh, Well, Jeff, that's the end of the revisit. So our last section is going through other messages and other answers where, well, frankly, you've just told us where we've got it wrong, which we're happy with as well. Travis Clark, uh, $1.45 last week, I went on a... I went on a Victorian trilogy, which was a lot of fun, talking about Dean Jones and Glenn Maxwell and another Victorian. I can't quite put my finger on at the moment, but Travis said that it was none of those things. It was the score that Brendan McCullum made in his final test match, which, Jeff, you and I were at uh, in 2016 at Christchurch. What a magnificent afternoon that was. He adds that he's an American cricket fan uh, that was able to watch the Kiwis play via the ESPN streaming app. So he remembers watching that innings and used that as his nerd pledge number. Thanks ever so much to Travis Clark <laughs> and Chris Arkell. Jeff, here's a good one here for 472. Yes. So, so Chris Arkell had sent 472 a while ago. Um, Adam managed to tie that to Derek Randall. I think it was Derek Randall's cap number. Derek Randall was an England batsman who made 100 in the centennial test back in 
1977, I suppose it was, because that would be 100 years after 1877 by conventional numbers. Uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly comes out once a month. <laughs> so th- that <laughs> um, we'd had that. We'd mentioned that on the show, but then Jeremy Nash, whose number came up earlier, so double appearance for Jeremy Nash, sent a DM on the patron page to let us know that Derek Randall's nickname was Arkle, the same as the last name of Chris Arkle, A-R-K-L-E, and and wondered whether this was related. So I bailed up Chris and said, what's going on here? Are you doing Derek Randall just to sneakily get yourself into the program twice by having a guy whose nickname is the same as your surname? And Chris said, well, yes, (laughs) he was doing that. Um, He liked Derek Randall because Derek Randall had that nickname, which was the same as Chris's last name. But then he gave me another little bit of information that I particularly like because you and I have discussed that my favourite nickname for any current Australian player, because most Australian nicknames are very boring, is the fact that uh, a number of the Australian players call Patrick Cummins Winks. Winks, mm. of course, is a famous horse. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that for a moment there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad you didn't. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> and they... <laughs> they call him Winks because he's a thoroughbred, you know, glossy mane, bright shiny eyes, steps out snorting, having a bowl of raw oats at the breakfast table. And so they say, oh, Winks, here here he is, the the horse. This is circuitous, admittedly, but Derek Randall was named Arkel, also after a horse. Arkel was a horse who won the Cheltenham Gold Cup three times in the (laughs) 1970s. Um, And quite why people saw fit to link Derek Randall with Arkel the horse, I don't know. But that is why he was called Arkel and that is why Chris Arkel chose Derek Randall as his nerd pledge. If you're still with me, congratulations. Your recall is so good you should be president. That's what it's all about. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, Evan Willis uh, sent through $3.83. It wasn't David Hussey, despite how much we wanted it to be. It was actually John Holland's 3 for 83 in Dubai uh, on debut all those years ago, although he's changing it to Hussey retrospectively. So thank you, Evan Willis, for that. Uh, Peter Hickey, sticking with the Victorian theme, at 209. Mm -hmm. It was, in fact... The highest first-class score of the freak, Ian Harvey, Jeff. Yeah, Peter Hickey just gave us this answer. I I mean, I would have been willing to dig for this one to find this out. But Ian Harvey made 209 batting for Yorkshire in county cricket in 2005. And and Peter Hickey wrote, this is a message I particularly enjoyed that Peter wrote to us to say, I remember practising the Ian Harvey back of the hand slower ball at home and in the nets until I was confident enough to try it in a local game. Once out on the synthetic pitch of Bundura United Cricket Club, I'd inevitably overthink when in the over to deploy my secret weapon, but I do remember getting it right once. The batsman swung too early and was through the shot. The ball took a leading edge and I took the sweetest court and bowl of my life. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. That is the sort of thing that I would dream of doing and never had the guts to actually do. I used to... I used to instead just bowl a very boring off-break as my slower ball and think that if I had the guts in the bottle to let one roll at the back of the hand. I remember many years ago, the satirical website that was called... Ooh, what were they called? It wasn't The Onion. It was a. It was an, it was called like... It was, a, it was a play on words there with an Australian rules football. Anyway, it goes back many years. And they said the way to solve peace in the Middle East would be to get um, them in the trenches uh, throwing grenades at the back of their hand at each other and they would be able to see the beauty in each other's technique and that would be it. There'd be no more... <laughs> There'd be no more fighting in the Middle East, and Ian Harvey could solve it at, at long last. So Ian Harvey, 209 at 2005. I didn't realise that he was playing county cricket that year, but I would have been, I'm sure, on the Victor Trumpet cricket board saying, get him into the Asher squad, bring him in for the Oval. 
Sure. Got to go to India. Patrick Rogers is one of our best correspondents, Jeff, and he always is good for a little nugget or two each week. Well, Patrick likes to pick up on what we're talking about and then go and take it further. So anyone who's willing to do that um, gets my vote. This from Patrick. He said, two mentions of Wilfred Rhodes were made on the 90th anniversary of his final first-class match where he played against Bradman and took five for 96 for the HDG Leveson Gower 11 against the touring Australians. Who said that the English were elitist? Nobody. Uh, Final word favourites, Andy Sandham and Charlie Parker were teammates in this match and Clary Grimmett was there but only bowled one over. Wilfred Rhodes did not dismiss the Don but he did bowl Archie Jackson. Like Phil Tufnell in his final first class match, Rhodes took a five wicket haul but he was dismissed 31 runs shy of 40,000 first class runs. Ridiculous. Patrick, that's a gem. 40,000 runs. One of my correspondents. Who uh, has the time? Well, I mean, I mean, we talk about numbers that will never be, never be beaten, uh, Rhodes with ball and bat. But um, in the case of that particular performance, there is someone writing a book about this at the moment. So when I wrote the piece about Suwanji Madanyaka, which links through to the longevity of Wilfred Rhodes, talked a little bit about um, the aforementioned test in 1930 and how he played when he was 52 and all the rest. Someone came back to me and said they're writing a book about this game where Rhodes bowled to Bradman for the same reason that we've been kind of obsessed with Rhodes in that he played against Bradman and also played against WG Grace back in 1899. So uh, mm-hmm. there will be some more on this, but I'm glad that Patrick Rogers has brought it up here now and gives us the chance to think about, well, yeah, 52-year-old Rhodes bowling at a, a 22-year-old Bradman and, and just imagine what may have happened had they been uh, listed to play against each other in a test match in that series and we could have gone full circle. Mm. But instead, we can only dream and commit it to fan fiction, as I'm sure we will at some stage. We've got a, another bit of correspondence from Rohit Ramesh who sent through $4.69. We had a few guesses around spinners, around Yassir Shah and Nathan Lyon. Uh, Rohit has given us the answer. He said he'd answer for us because it's relevant right now but probably won't be for much longer. So there's an urgency to this. 469 is the aggregate highest score in an IPL game. It was 2010 when the Chennai Super Kings were up against the Rajasthan Royals. CSK were battling on the ladder and losing bowlers right, left and centre. So they called up as reinforcements Doug Bollinger, (laughs) the famous (laughs) Australian fast bowler who was beloved for his work and his idiosyncrasies wherever he goes. Uh, Rowett wrote this paragraph to us in the message. He said, Dougie had just bowled Australia to a victory in Hamilton and was called in to play his first game three days later, going from those chilly winds to a day game in Chennai when it was 42 degrees. CSK batted first on a road and made 246. In reply, Rajasthan gave it a mighty crack, belting everybody except for one bowler. Doug Bollinger was unplayable. His first two overs conceded three runs. He took a brilliant catch on the boundary to get rid of Yusuf Patan before coming back in the 15th over to get rid of Shane Watson, who was smashing it everywhere. Uh, by the time he came back for his final over, the packed Chepauk Stadium had fallen in love with him and started the war cry of Bollinger, Bollinger. <laughs> Rajasthan <laughs> fell short by 23 runs. So in a match where 469 runs were conceded, Doug Bollinger had figures from four overs of two for 16. <laughs> Uh, and Rowett finishes off by saying, the powers that be still gave man of the match to one of the batsmen. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a batsman's game, certainly uh, in the T20 form in India, that's for sure. I love that we can look back at Dougie Bollinger's career now and you know, now that it's over and, and realise he had his moment. I mean, this week even when we were looking at Josh Hazelwood's uh, remarkable economy rates against England at Old Trafford, comparing it back to what's happened in the last 20 years or so, there are a number of spells at Bollinger Bowls which... Uh, much like that, sort of, you know, one or two for 20-odd or 30-odd across his 10 overs in that brief period when he was kind of leading the Australian white ball teams and as a result got that, that IPL opportunity. Uh, a, a bowler we won't forget, and I'm glad that Rohit hasn't forgot him either. <laughs> Thank you, Rohit. And our, our last bit in from Jeremy Burke asking if we can settle an argument he's having with himself because he's got nobody else within five kilometres in Melbourne to have that argument with. Now, maybe you can get to the bottom of this, Adam. In the C-Bus ad at the start of the show, the guy who had an accident on a building site, Jeremy Burke contends, is Daniel Norcross attempting a very bad Australian accent? We've had that on the show before. Uh, So is that the case? Is Daniel Norcross secretly moonlighting as a C-Bus voice actor? I love saying this because you're right. Daniel does love putting on his Australian accent, or his Queensland accent, as he likes to call it, um, all the time. And as it happens, Ellie Oldroyd, dear friend of the show, BBC Five Live legend, came up and asked me exactly the same question at Manchester during the week, asking whether Norky <laughs> was the, <laughs> the guy in the C-Bus ad. So, look, he's probably not, but what it does mean uh, is that we can relay this information to C-Bus and, and let them know mm. that if they ever need a voice actor in the future, Daniel Norcross is ready to serve. Can I suggest this instead? Can we go to C- us and offer to revoice the ads ourselves with our collected cast of, <laughs> of you know, friends and final word family because I think we could have a lot of fun doing it. They could send us the scripts they've used before and, and we could do the lot. I don't think we had a Seabus Super Performer of the Week listed this week but it's Jeremy Burke for mine uh, on account of the fact that he's been able to dig out that little nugget. So of course um, Seabus have been huge supporters of what we do on the final word uh, week in week out since last year's World Cup which feels like a really long time ago now considering we've had an Ashes series, a home summer and a pandemic in between. Uh, but cbosuper.com.au is where you can find out more information about the great people there. And of course, past performance is no reliable indicator of future performance. You can get a PDS in a PDF and learn more about them. But um, if you are um, considering what you are doing with your superannuation or your financial services information and all the rest of it, no better place to go than cbosuper.com.au, Jeff. Let's uh, take a little breather. We'll play some... Soothing interstitial music. We'll see what the Lord's Taverners are up to and then we will rendezvous with Matthew Renshaw through the hot tub time machine going back a year and change to when we had that conversation. This is the final word. Jeff, it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked about the Lord's Taverners and in those uh, couple of weeks uh, you may have been finding in the news that you're uh, reading from over here that in all likelihood... We're going back into some version of lockdown, which is no good thing, especially when you consider the work that the Lord's Taverners uh, have been doing throughout this summer in tough circumstances. They're an organisation we're really proud to be associated with. They're one of the leading sports charities in the UK, of course, working with youth cricket and disability sports and and so on. They've been around since 1950, breaking down barriers and helping uh, people at risk build life skills. And it could not be more important right now that we gather around and support these important uh, participants in our cricketing community. Well, it's pretty starkly obvious at the moment. You know, I'm into my second week of quarantine in a hotel room where I haven't exchanged more than, you know, a few words with a police officer who walks me to an outsized exercise area Mm. once a day. Isolation's pretty difficult and, 
you know, I'm in a comparatively very comfortable situation and it still sucks. It still gets to you in, in a lot of ways. Doing the podcast has been a lifeline because it's uh, some form of human interaction without which, you know, I'd, I'd be it would be a lot harder doing this if it wasn't the age of the internet um, I, and there wasn't that level of interaction there. So isolation and loneliness have been huge issues across the world over the last few months in a whole range of countries where people are, are locking down and, and having to lock down and that's been the case in the UK and it's it's likely to be again. And there's the, the knock-on effect that isolation and, and loneliness are something that uh, people living with disability, particularly young people living with disability, are much more likely to suffer isolation and loneliness at the best of times. They're more likely to be excluded. They're uh, less likely to have a, a, a consistent peer group to be able to spend time with. And then in these kind of times when logistics get difficult, it's much more difficult to get kids with a disability to places where they can have social interaction and where they're they're not going to be affected by loneliness and isolation. So it's a huge issue at the moment. The Lord's Taverners make that their focus and it's a really admirable uh, effort that they put in. And if you are able to support them, that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, so this is where Lord's Taverners often fill that gap. So 12,000 young people each year uh, are involved in their award-winning cricket programs, including table cricket and wickets and super ones. And uh, the charity is all about laying the foundation for a positive future by building an inclusive community uh, breaking down barriers and empowering disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential. And as part of that, Lord's Taverners have been running the Isolate campaign. So this will all be in our show notes. But in keeping with what Jeff mentioned before, we're trying to help them raise money and raise awareness of their programs by donating $8 or £8 on their platform and nominating eight friends to do the same. It's fairly straightforward. We would have seen it a lot through the coronavirus period where, where you're nominating your friends to help out and, and, and support causes. Well, this is a very good one. As Jeff mentioned before, young people with disability are twice as likely to experience feel, feelings of loneliness uh, compared to their uh, non-disabled peers. And yeah, since the outbreak of COVID-19, the programs have unfortunately uh, came to a halt. So we want to make sure, as far as the final word is concerned, that we're doing all we can to help out. So there's the Isolate program, all the information at lordstaverners.org, and that information is also in the show notes, how you can be a part of what we are trying to do here with the final word with Lords Taverners, good people doing really important things in our cricketing community. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Matthew Renshaw, thanks for joining The Final Word. It's a bit of an interesting time to, to grab you and have a chat, actually, given that you're now 23 as of last month. You've had a hell of a few years, some real highs and some considerable lows. I mean, where do you see yourself at right now? How are you feeling after what's been, yeah, quite a tumultuous couple of years? Yeah, thanks for having me, for starters. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting few years. It's the, the roller coasters, um, cricket as a sport, and then international and state cricket as well. But... Um, no, I don't think I probably would have changed it anyway to say I've played 11 tests at 23 is pretty exciting and and hopefully a few more to come. But if I, if I don't play any more test cricket, I've still played 11 tests, which is exciting. Does it sometimes feel like, given that most guys by the age of 23, they, they haven't certainly haven't debuted for Australia, a lot of them are barely getting a start for their state yet, does it feel like you've already had almost a career worth of experiences in the space of just three short years? I think so, yeah. It's it's all happened pretty quickly. Um, been on a few really exciting tours as well. Been to India, been to Bangladesh and uh, been to South Africa as well, which um, probably ticks off a few boxes in, in terms of experience, which is, is nice for me to to know. I've, I've been over to a few of those places and and then just um, a bit of experience in, in Australia as well. But 
No, I think it's it's something that is really challenging and, and that's the, the enjoyable part about it is having that challenge. We're coming to you from the Kent County Cricket Club, a beautiful ground uh, here in the southeast of England, a gorgeous old hand-operated scoreboard. That's where you've been, where you've been playing your trade for the, the last couple of months. Um, let's start there. What is it about county cricket that seems to agree with you so much? Such a, a great stint with Somerset last year and an opportunity here this year. We talked around this time last year and you said you want to keep coming back to county cricket for as long as you possibly can. What is it about here that, that agrees with you? Um, I think the part, there's so much cricket that you don't have real chance to think too much about it or you you play a game and two days later you're playing another game and and so you've, you've obviously got to think about who you're coming up against but it's more an onus on you, especially as an Australian cricketer coming over here it's all on yourself about how to score runs and and you don't have that backdrop of of the nice comfort zone you have in Australia you've got to go into a new surroundings a new team and and play against new oppositions. Matt do you think it potentially sets you up to have a big advantage because you look at sort of the past of Australian cricket you you have guys like the War Brothers and Alan Border and so on in the 80s who were coming over to England and playing all the time that's kind of dropped off in the current generation often players don't have time or they can't get the access they can't get the visa whatever it might be Um, but to be able to come back repeatedly and have repeated English summers you know and make use of that Australian winter and play in those different conditions do you think that can be a big component for uh, making sure that you can succeed in all conditions? I think so yeah um it's obviously a, a nice opportunity for me to, to be able to come up over here. I'm not sure. I think you need to play a test over the last two years to be able to be an overseas over here. So I think I need to get a move on and, and play another one so I can get <laughs> back next year. But um, no, it's been I really enjoyed and, and the opportunity to, to meet a lot of new guys and, and play some, some different brands of cricket and, and learn from some senior guys is, is something that I really really cherish and, and then go back to Australia and try and um, sort of tell people about my experiences over there, the young guys, and, and try and be a bit more of a leader back home as well. Uh, you've got plenty of family history here in the United Kingdom as well with this, of course, being where your family came from, where you were born. Do you think that contributes to it, that when you come here you, you are essentially in your second home? Yeah, I think I think a little bit. Um, most of my family's up north, which is is quite a lot different to to the southeast. I think it's a bit bit colder up there. But um, no, it's always nice, and and you have a lot of familiarity going to some places that you've played before, which is is nice to have. And, and it was it was quite strange this year. Went going and playing at Somerset was was quite a new experience for me. I've never played against a team that I've played for before, so that was a, a new experience in itself this year, which was didn't do very well in those games but um no it was was sort of it was nice to have i wanted to ask about that actually matt the thing of having to change teams so quickly and you see players especially doing it in the t20 era these days jumping from country to country Uh, but even for yourself you know you're in there with the brisbane heat then you're playing for queensland playing for australia playing for different county sides how What's the experience like when you land in a dressing room somewhere and you don't know anybody, but you've got to be able to gel with these other players and sort of try to form something cohesive as a team really quickly? Yeah, that's that's probably one of the big challenges of, of cricket in the moment, being such a, a worldwide sport and so many different opportunities is 
is getting over here and, and meeting people. I remember the first day I sort of just sat in my corner of the dressing room, didn't have any kit yet, um, was just waiting for that because I was so jet-lagged. I think I was up at about 4 a.m. and waiting for everyone in the dressing room. But, <laughs> no, it's it's a nice new experience for, for me and I think I'd recommend it for, for anyone who has the opportunity, whether that be in, in club cricket over here, to, to get over. And I think you learn a lot about yourself going into a new group where you're not as familiar with the people. Let's go back to the start of your international career, which was a real whirlwind experience. You walk into the dressing room after the, the, the test site had been flogged in Hobart a couple of weeks before. You were part of the, the new generation, the clean-out, as it were, and you walk out and bat in a pink ball test match and were not out overnight on about 10 or thereabouts, and you're the back page of the paper. Such was the thirst that Australia had for an opener who could bat long periods of time at that exact juncture that you were suddenly a back page star. What was it like, that experience, from being a relatively unknown state cricketer maybe two or three weeks before to being, like I say, a, a serious personality in, 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 the, in, in the sporting landscape of Australia? Yeah, well, I was, I was injured two weeks before. I'd, um, I'd had a bit of a problem with my knee during the, the one-day cup, um, I think it was a month before, and I was coming back from injury and, and played a club game on the Saturday. The Shield game started on the Thursday. Uh, played a club game on the Saturday. I was captain. We lost the toss, and as soon as we lost the toss, I was like, oh, no, we're going to be fielding all day. The opposition captain chose to bowl, so we're batting. I think I got 50, and so that made me feel a bit more confident going to the Shield game. If we'd have fielded all day, I probably would have been struggling. And then got 100, and then second innings, the, that's when the media sort of started coming and going, oh, you might be a, a bit of a chance here. And I sort of started panicking a little bit and started play, <laughs> I started playing a pull shot for me, which was, which was crazy back then. Um, and um, no, and then got picked, and it's just really, really quick to to then go from um, Sunday morning, the last day of the game, pack your bags, you might be on the way to Adelaide tonight. And I was like, "Geez, that's 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 happened so quickly compared to the Saturday before, where I was playing club cricket and just um, having a ball of a time with those boys, and then." going and, and meeting all the Australian Test cricketers on on the Monday. And then a week after that, you're sitting in the change rooms, I suppose, after a, a Test victory. That, that Test was won on the Sunday evening, and, and you were not out at the end, uh, having batted for a considerable amount of time in that chase, but you immediately drew some strong responses because as, as much as Australians wanted someone to bat for a long time, they also wanted you to score more quickly and you were, to an extent, getting booed by the crowd, which seems crazy to think about that now. But again, what, give, us a, give us some insight to how that felt being out in the middle playing in a test match and copying a bit of grief for theoretically, I guess, not going fast enough. Having a, a chase, I think it was 130 or 140 or something like that, and I always know as a, a batting side, if you lose a few wickets early, then you you could be struggling in that chase. So I always wanted to try and bat it out, and then it sort of got a bit embarrassing at the end. I was trying to score runs, I just I couldn't. I was facing Rabada, and I was trying to hit them. I was just playing and missing, and was having an absolute shocker. And then Shamsi came on. I was like, oh, I might be able to get a couple here, and just kept playing and missing. It. <laughs> I was sort of thinking about booing myself as well. And, <laughs> And you got like Steve Smith and Dave Warner and all them at the other end just making it look so easy and I'm there just trying to hit the ball, I couldn't do it. It seems like people are very erratic though and they change their minds very quickly because, you know, two days before that test, everyone in Australia is going, oh, we just don't have any players who can bat time, you know. They just need to get out there and knuckle down and put a price <laughs> on their wicket. And five days later, they're like, fucking hurry up, mate. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think at one point I was sort of the bowlers run. I think it was Philando was running in. I'm just like, hit him back over his head, hit him back over his head. And then I was like... <laughs> 
as a as he released it, I'm like, no, block it. And then I played, <laughs> and then I played and missed it as well, so I didn't even get to hit it. I want to I want to ask you about that um, that shield round because we were all watching it, going. I think we were calling it Australian Idol round. Yeah, we, Australia's we got we talent, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whoever whoever makes a, a run here is going to get in, and you know, you came good with the hundred. Pete Hanscom made a double. Did you did all the players in that round have the sense that like you? A very, very good chance to get a test spot if you make a hundred in this in this round, and that's all you need to do. Not really, no. I, I I was just worrying about coming back from injury and not not hurting my knee that round. It was my first game of the season for for Shield cricket, so I was I was had that little bit of nerves there, and and then just went out there and I think I played and missed about a hundred balls off Chad Sayers at the Gabba, which I think anyone who's done that faced him at the Gabba will probably probably say they've done the same thing but I think if, to be fair if I'd have nicked one of those that I played and missed at I, I would probably wouldn't be sitting here with with the record I've got. One of the quirks of that test match was he actually opened the batting with Usman Khawaja due to the funky declaration that Fafdi Plessy made to ensure that Warner couldn't walk out with you but you ended up of course batting with Dave Warner quite a lot through that summer you're at the other end the best seat in the house for his century in a session against Pakistan at the SCG uh, what was it like being there watching Warner from close quarters when he was seemingly invincible that morning at Sydney? Yeah that was that was a great spot to watch that innings um sort of happened so quickly I've, I've not got that many, many memories at the other end but I just remember he was on 97 and I think it was 97 and I'm at I'm at the non-strikers end and I, I play and miss one I get booed and then I play and miss one and get and, and get a cheer because it's last ball of the over and the next one's the last over before lunch that was probably me I'm sorry about that yeah um, and then he's hit that that late cut to third man and I'm just like He's on 97, we've got to run. Like, this is the best chance we've got. And I've just, I've looked up and I've saw sort of fumble. I've gone, okay, I'm just going. I've called yes and I've sprinted through and I, ne- I thought I nearly had to pull the dive out. I ended up being home by miles and then he's gone off for his, <laughs> his big run and I'm sort of, if you'll probably look at a photo and I'm just sort of there standing next to him, just really awkward waiting for, to congratulate him for his 100. <laughs> so it's a bit like being left hanging, like the, the mid-air handshake and yeah, the just, high five. But I was just standing right behind him just waiting for him to turn around. It was really awkward. You got to do the same thing yourself about three hours or four hours later than he did and you got to raise three figures for the first time in Test cricket, which to, the, to date is the, the only time you've done so. But um, again, your, your memories of, uh, of on a, a big day on the Australian cricket calendar, day one at Sydney, um, posting three figures and, and how, um, how it felt to achieve that dream so soon after coming into the Test side. Yeah, that was, that was a, probably one of the best moments of my cricket life. Um, Having, I think having Pete Hanscom out there for for that was was really good because he'd gone through it earlier in the summer. The, I think the test before, or two tests before, and he knew what I was going through. And I remember I was on ninety nine. They sp- they spread the field a little bit, but everyone was quite close. He goes, "Mate, if you go, I'm going." And I've blocked. They moved short leg out. I remember. I, s- I still remember. It. They moved short leg to a square leg, and I've literally hit it to short where short leg would have probably caught me. And I've just like gone yes, and just started running, and I like nearly dived in. They went to Pete's end. They didn't even go near my end, and I was just like, <laughs> and then I sort of just just panicked, and I didn't can't even remember my celebration from from my own head. Did, did you have you watched it back much? I mean, the sort of thing I, I've asked cricketers before is that these great moments in your career. It's a bit different when you're a recreational cricketer. You can't go back, and you're relying on your memories of the day, like of course it is at, at club level now, I suppose. But. Uh, test level you need all these cameras on you and it's on youtube any number of places i'm sure have you gone back and and watched that maybe in in some times where things haven't been going so well 
Yeah, I've watched it a couple of times just to sort of to remember what you play, not you play for, just the the moments where you're having some success and and you want to try and get back to that. Um, it's it's not it's not ideal when you're not scoring runs and you go back and look at when you scored a test hundred. But um, no, it, it's sort of nice to know that you've got the ability to do it on the, on that level. You're talking about those moments when like everything's a rush and a scramble and and you you just trying to get in your crease and you don't know where the ball's going and all the rest of it. People off the field are always you know, are saying like, oh, why did he make this decision or why did he do that? How much of the time are you not even really totally aware of what's going on? You're just, you're just operating on adrenaline and instinct and, you know, petrol and whatever else. I think a lot better than what I was. I remember before I made my first 100, I got run out for 94 in shield cricket. I hit one straight to Travis Head at mid-off and ran and I think I was out by half a pitch. And I remember when I was in the 90s in that test match, I'm like, just don't get run out, just don't get run out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could live with myself if I ran myself out in the 90s before I got one in test cricket. But no, um, it's, there's not very often that you sort of, um, the adrenaline's going, it's a bit more if you're an autopilot and you just sort of, when you get in that zone where you're, you're scoring runs and everything feels really good, that's they're probably the ones you enjoy the most. That autopilot that you talk about, when it comes to having a, a routine, different players do different things. I know Steve Smith touches every part of his equipment 12 times and you know Jonathan Trott used to mark his guard relentlessly as the bowler was going back to his, to his mark. Uh, for your part, I, I recall you saying in the past that you sing between balls and try and get a song in your head and, and sing throughout. Is that, is that remain part of your routine now a couple of years on? Yeah, I try and I walk out to, to square leg or I walk down, down the wicket and and just try and have a song stuck in my head. And, and at the times, it's literally one line just over and over. And, and it can get quite <laughs> frustrating. I've got quite frustrated myself while I'm batting, just singing the same line over and over. And I'm sort of like, I need a new song here. Um, but then there's been times where I've swapped songs mid-innings. I've sort of done that a bit weird. But um, no, I think when I'm at my best, that's when I'm, I'm singing the song. And and it it doesn't feel too forced as well. If I'm trying to force myself to sing a song, then it's a bit more awkward. You should you should take a mental note of what songs these are and, and catalogue them and put them out as a, a, a Christmas CD or something like that from from the from the uh, from the from the Spotify middle of the ground. playlist. Yeah, exactly, something like that. Yeah, it's I'm generally sure just <laughs> the one that whoever's got the music in the changing room. It's sort of us. At, at one point, I was sort of Mitch Swepson in the Bulls was the. The, the DJ as you will um, yeah. and I sort of look at him before I'm batting I'm like next song next song next song <laughs> and then go yeah yeah that's good so if you've had if you've had a long innings if you've had a good day in the middle do you come off wanting to listen to that song or do you never want to hear it again because you've sung the refrain about 384 times oh, I, don't, I don't listen to that song for a couple of days <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned Warner before Matt what's it like uh, sharing a dressing room and being the opening partner of David Warner a lot of people talk about Dave and think they know Dave well and, uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of people do but not many people have had the sort of experience that you have yeah yeah, he's he's great great to bat with having a guy who takes the game on as an opener and and especially back when I was in the test team and I was probably going a bit slow and playing missing a lot um they'd probably all the opposition were worrying about him and I could just sort of get on with my business at the other end and mm. and just sort of sort of bat and especially that innings where he got his 100 in the session I think I was 20 at lunch and and that was a good day for me um, 20 at lunch Um, but I could just sort of get into my innings and get into my groove while everyone was sort of looking at him and about the the lessons I've I've learned off him were quite good especially the subcontinent 
my first tour over there and and learning about sort of plans from him and and how he goes about his training and and his batting is is something I'll I'll still think about when I if I go over there. And as well as being a role model in terms of his batting, he he has been hard on you at different times as well. Yeah, yeah, he's um he obviously wants to get the best out of the young guys and and as an opening partner of him, he probably wants to see me succeed and and so he he was really really firm on me, but about things that probably needed to be firm on, like taking everything serious and and being the best best cricketer that I could be and the best person I can be. So you mentioned the subcontinent. You had that experience of going on a massive India tour. You know, Australia wins that first test, which doesn't happen in India very often. Um, Steve Smith played the series of his life over there. And you put in a really important performance in that that first test as well when things were, you know... could have gone pretty diabolically wrong. It was a very low-scoring test, and you had to you had to guts things out, sort of literally, because you were you were crook on the field as well. Um, when when you've got the shits in the middle of a test match, are you aware that like everyone in watching in the stands is making jokes about it? And does does that make it slightly more annoying than the average case? Well, no, I, it sort of came on really quickly. I, I think I let one <laughs> let one rip out there in the middle, and we were about fifteen minutes away from lunch or twenty minutes away from lunch. And then about five minutes later, I'm I'm standing there just sort of a bit bit more uncomfortable, sort of like, is this is this another fart? Is this yep. is this something a bit more serious? And then it sort of started coming on very quickly, and and I, I think I asked I asked Richard Kettleborough how long till lunch, and um, he was like oh, 15 minutes. I'm like. Because there's no clocks in the stands, there's nothing, and I was yep. mm-hmm. sort of trying to think. Fifteen minutes—that's about four overs. Well, like, like it might go a bit longer, and then all of a sudden, I just really needed to go to the toilet. And I was sort of like asked him again, "How long till lunch?" And he said, oh, 13 minutes." Like something. Why are you <laughs> asking me again? Um, and then Warner got out. He got bold, and I've just like. The I think the twelfth he's come on and I'm just like I need to go to the toilet. Like I'm literally I'm either going to shit myself on the field or just get to a toilet. <laughs> and so I've asked I've asked the umpire if I could retire hurt, like if I could just retire hurt, go off to the toilet and then come back at some point later, like because I didn't know what what was going on. And he's like mm. you can you can retire. I'm like no no no. Can I retire hurt? Because if I wanted to, if I was going to have to retire out. I'd, yep. I'd have just stayed there and, and probably have a lot more nicknames than just the guy who ran off the <laughs> ran off the field. But um, uh, he said I could retire hurt, so I've just bolted. And Smithy's on his way out to bat, and he's sort of just he's already confused about why I'm running off. And then he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Mate, I need to go to the toilet." And he's like, "No, no, no, come back with me." So I'm like holding this in. I've walked back to the umpire and like confirmed with Smithy what was going on and I've just uh, and he's like okay go then like I, f- I feel sorry for Sean Marsh he was up there just chilling and then he was there was out there batting and I've run round I've, I've run into the dressing room and from the dressing room to the toilets it turned into tiles and I'm ripping my pads off and I forgot I had spikes on and I've just gone up on all fours while fallen over like landed I'm still ripping my pads off got up and just got to the toilet but 
<laughs> but it was like the, the great thing about this story it's, it's an incredibly relatable story yeah. obviously for obvious reasons but at the time like from our vantage point at the other end of the ground there at, uh, at Puna we didn't have a bloody clue what was going on and of course you copped a fair bit of grief from people including Alan Border who made some reference to the fact that you should have gutsed it out or you know uh, uh, words to that effect um, it's the sort of thing where it's going to come up for probably the rest of your life and it's lucky it's a great story it'll yeah. make you plenty of money one day <laughs> I, um, I, but, think, I think part of me is like still like talking to my mates about it all and part of me is really annoyed at myself that I didn't just didn't just take a shit on the, in my pants on the field like <laughs> I feel that that would be a better story than just oh, I ran off the field to, if, if I shit myself on on international cricket stage I would have like I've, I feel like there could have been a lot more sponsorship opportunities available. Maybe some, all the boys. Now that's commitment. That's dedication. That's a real Australian pride in the badge, shitting himself on the field. That's what we want to see. We want a team that's willing to shit themselves on the field. Why don't we see that commitment from Australian players in the modern age? Oh, I'll tell you what, AB would have shat himself on the field. And Chabel would have shat himself on the field. Todd Bradman would have shat himself on the field. Better than anyone else. Oh. Uh. I, 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 Jeff, I've got to say, I had no expectation of asking that question, but now we've come this far. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this has been thoroughly worthwhile uh, for us to explore. So, so that was I'm India. I'm just <laughs> loving the image of losing the footing on the tiles and then having to like crawl towards and you've still got pads on and you're like, you know, they're not the pads that you need in that sort of situation. And, and, you're, tw- and you're 20 and like, years you're old. You're wearing white cricket clothes. You're yeah. wearing white kit. It's the worst possible sport to shit yourself in. At uh, least if you're playing for Hawthorne, you'd be fine. <laughs> and, and, and the other element to this, Jeff, is you're 20 years old. You know, you, you're relatively near the international, you're the youngest bloke on the field. And then and what were you doing when you were 20? I know you were probably crawling around the bathroom as well for different reasons, Jeff. I probably shat myself for different reasons, but not, not with such a big audience. Oh, dear. I don't know how to segue out of this. Let's just stick... Let's just stick so, so you've been to India. You have your 21st birthday in the Durham Charlotte Test match. Doesn't go so well. Press fast forward. We're in Bangladesh. You play another one of those kind of innings to start the, the series when wicket's falling around you. You bat for a couple of sessions and, and keep the ship together. Um, Australia, Australia win. The, 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 I said ship, Jeff, to, to be clear. Uh, you, you win the okay. second test in, in Chittagong. And to our way of thinking, from where we were watching it, uh, from a media perspective, we just thought, you know, Matt Renshaw, you can pretty much ink his name on, on the team sheet, not just for the Ashes series, but they're investing in this young bloke. He's doing the right things and, and so on. And then it goes radically haywire. Over a three-week period in the Sheffield Shield, you probably don't make it to double figures it was a, a terrible run of form and, and suddenly you, there are people calling for your head um, across the country you've got um, an opposing coach in Justin Langer who at the time was coaching Western Australia um, saying that you should be replaced by his opener at the time Cameron Bancroft what, what that that is a pretty sharp decline in a very short space of time yeah that was that was pretty full-on um, probably the most intense at that time the most intense couple of weeks of my cricketing career um Coming back from Bangladesh, I, I missed out in the last in the last test. I got burgled, which um, is always a fun way to get out, especially yep. as a as an opener. You, you do all this and then you get burgled. Um, and then just into shield cricket, I think I might have changed my technique a little bit going into Bangladesh to to deal with the sort of Bangladesh wickets and that sort of thing, and and didn't adjust very well coming back. If I'm if I'm completely honest, and then. Sort of just kept finding ways to getting it for getting out. I think Dan Christian bounced me out at one point, which um, I don't know if you faced Dan Christian, but 
Um, that was that was enjoyable for for me and him. He's he's not the quickest going around, is he? No, well, he hit me in the head this year in Big Bash as well. So um, <laughs> I think I just need to duck under him. Um, but um, and then sort of just scratching around, feel like I was close to to getting a, a beginnings, and then a couple of umpiring decisions and a couple of um, bad ways to get out is sort of how you get out the side really and. And to be fair, Bancroft, he, he got a, a really good game against the, the test attack and then yep. he got 250 or, or something like that, which sure. it's hard to sort of say no to. And, and if you looked at who was in form and out of form, I wasn't didn't have the runs on the board, which they asked for. And so he probably deserved that opportunity. And then the next weekend, you're playing shield cricket against WA uh, at the Wacker and they're getting into you. Their mates playing for Australia at Brisbane and you're back with them in a Shield game that's very much off-Broadway because everyone's focused on the Ashes contest on the other side of the country. Um, what, what, what does that feel like? Not many people can understand, I suppose, what the, the emotion must be of being at the, the one of the elite cricketers in the country and in the test side to being, you know, not to say Shield cricket is too far down the pecking order, but the next level down and, and copying a barrage from uh, the teammates of the guy who's now in your spot. Yeah, that was... That was a fun sort of week. Um, going, going to that to to Perth. It that was quite ironic um, having that game there. Yeah. But um, no, it was tough, um, tough sort of week. And then um, sort of just kept it's that kept that roller coaster going downhill. Um, but I think the the support I had from from the Queensland guys. I think second innings, I, I got out and I just I walked to the nets just nearly straight from the dressing room from the middle walk to the nets and I sort of was just like I need to need to sort this out because I need to score some runs quickly and and sort of just started I think at one point I must have thought it was big bash season because I was just slogging everything and I sort of just sat down in the nets and and one of the assistant coaches Ashley Nofke came over and and we just started talking which was was really good I, I just felt like everything was sort of coming to a to a head and and for a 21 year old at that time that was that was really tough to sort of deal with that as much as I was trying it nothing was really working and um and then the next week we went to Cairns and I left a straight one and got LBW for about three and and I thought oh no that's gonna happen again and and then thankfully Chad Sayers started sledging me which um started sledging me in Cairns saying that I was useless and, and couldn't score a run and I look over and he's wearing his Aussie whites taped up and I've just gone, okay, I'm going at him here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I was sick of just getting sledged every week that I'm going out. Everyone's saying I can't bat. I just started going at him for wearing these Aussie whites and, <laughs> and somehow got, got 50. And, and then I think after that, I was, I was feeling quite confident. But I just needed, I needed someone to go at me. It, it just seemed. <laughs> it, it, it shows that those sorts of topics, that, that it doesn't matter where you're playing, that something as small as that can still be enough to get under someone's skin. So he was wearing, I assume for what you mean by that, he's Australian-issued whites, which he never actually got to use having been 12 Yeah, he, he'd obviously taped them up and I sort of, I, I don't know why I noticed them, but I just noticed them. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go at him here. <laughs> so he, he's the uh, he's the pro-level version of a full kit wanker because he's <laughs> he showed up to a game <laughs> wearing 12th-y kit. <laughs> That's that's beautiful, and also being sledged by like he's he's like seems like one of the nicest blokes alive. Chad says, <laughs> like imagine yeah, him being me off to the you. field. He's he's a ripper bloke, um, <laughs> but no, I think because he got me out the first things, and and every time I play against him, I seem to play and miss a, at everything against him. Mm. Just bowls that little nibbly and then seam, and so I just 
I'd play and miss at everything and then I just, I don't know what happened. It just sort of clicked and I think I just went full rampage mode on him. Well, he, he worked over AB de Villiers in Johannesburg and, you know, AB was in the form of his life and Sayer's got the inside edge. So, you know, no shame in that. I think you're the one person in the world that remembers that, Jeff. From all, everything I, that happened in, in that week in Johannesburg, you, you remember that one thing to, to stick in your he, memory. He worked him. He, it was like a three-over burst. He kept, <laughs> AB couldn't get bad on him. It was beautiful. I mean, this was, you know, in the first innings, didn't go so well the no, second time around. No, it didn't. Well, now we are in 20, 2017, 2018. So we, we've talked before about how white ball cricket tended to liberated you towards the back end of the Shield season. Um, you end up back in the test squad under... Relatively unusual circumstances, shall we say? It's a pretty good story. Where are you when you find out that all hell's broken loose in Cape Town? And, and how? Talk me through, or talk us through the couple of days. That's all it was between waking up that morning and, and you know travelling to the other side of the world. Yeah, it was. Thing it was. It was either day one or two of the Shield final. Um, I can't remember which day. I think it was day two because. Day one had been washed out, even though it was the probably the sunniest day in Brisbane because the outfield was wet. Um, and then I woke up and I, I'd noticed the, the score like was on while I was asleep. And I woke up and my cousin's sitting on the couch at about eight o'clock, which that was rare. He was my housemate at the time, but him him being up at that time was quite rare. And he was like, "Mate, did you see what happened with the the Aussies?" I'm like. No, like guessing there was a collapse or they'd taken loads of wickets and he's like no no there's some something that went on and so he's put it on the news like he's watching the news and it's all all kicking off there and so I've 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 like watched it all got ready gone to the game and and as you can expect everyone was talking about it when we were were there in the in the ground and and then so we're, we're sort of like oh, I wonder what's going to happen but because we're playing the Shield final, we all want to win the Shield and we started just, we put it aside and started concentrating on the Shield game and then day five, the morning of the game, um, morning of the last day, we're in a pretty strong position, probably all knew that we were very close to winning it. Um, I got a phone call from Trevor Hone saying, mate, you're on a you're on a flight tonight at f- at seven o'clock to, to South Africa, you're replacing Smithy because he'd been um, he'd been banned by the ICC for a game. Yeah. Um, so I was like, shit, I need a pack. Like, was looking around for my passport, looking around for all that sort of thing. And I got there, took my bag, like had to speak to the media guy because I didn't want to turn up to a Shield game with my Aussie bags there. The the media would see that I'm going. I couldn't <laughs> say anything. Um, and then we got into the game like. And then I, it was we had a rain delay, and I'm thinking, how hold on, I've got a what if I'm batting during the the flight? Like I was supposed to leave at four o'clock. Um, if I'm batting at four o'clock, I can't like retire hurt, go and catch a flight to Savary. So I started talking. Just, to, just tell them you're about to shit yourself. And just, <laughs> <laughs> I know that, uh, they might believe me about that. Um, and so we've spoken to them, and and so that we there was a rain delay and. So we had to chase 130 in the in the fourth innings to to win, but we didn't need to. But we we all wanted to try and win that final, mm. and so they decided that if I was still batting at four o'clock, um, I would take a later flight. But if I wasn't, I'd get the the seven o'clock flight. And so I remember looking at that the scoreboard at Allen Border, sort of just blocking, blocking, like trying to survive everything. And and then as soon as it hit four o'clock. Because I wanted to be there to celebrate the, the Shield win yeah. um, with all the guys that I'd gone through so much with that year. Um, as soon as four o'clock happened, I think you could probably look at the scorecard where the time was, and I just started playing some shots, and it was <laughs> it was so much fun. I, 
<laughs> hey, just to be absolutely clear to make this, this timeline right, you, you made sure you got there till four o'clock so you could go on the circuit with your mates for a couple of hours after the Shield win to get a later flight to the Australian test. That's well, no, great. I just wanted to lift the trophy. I thought that would be, <laughs> that would be awesome to, to go through everything that I'd gone through that whole year and then miss out on, on the, the actual winning and the singing the song, which yep. I've still got videos on my phone of the songs, which was probably some of the best best moments of my life. And, and yeah, so it was, it was nice to, to sort of have that and then just the got got to the airport i was absolutely exhausted just met, like made on the flight fell asleep probably five minutes i don't think i made it to take off and then the whole like getting to south africa um the the boys had left south africa while i was on the plane so we'd like missed each other and i'd got to the hotel and all the guys in the hotel obviously pretty down said did you see the did you get any grief at the airport and i'd not had wi-fi for 24 hours i hadn't seen what was going on and then you look at the footage that like the the cameraman and everything that was going on in the airport i'm like no i just literally walked through got in the car like left no one was there to to see me which we weren't doing our job jeff (laughs) that's that's, that's what matt's saying you should have been papping you at the airport Matt Renshaw refused to comment. What has he got to hide? Last year, I was sent out to Pat Ben Stokes at an airport in, in Auckland. I have my uh, on my phone as he walks out of arrivals at one point. It's not a particularly fun job, but uh, you know, it has to be done no. sometimes. Talk, talk us through it, though. Like you know, that flight's a bit of a killer. I remember taking it over there and then just being completely useless for about three days. You take it over there and you've got what, like twenty four hours to try to turn it around before you've you know you've got to walk out in a test match. You were you were at training at Joburg the day before and you mustn't have been able to remember your own name. Yeah, I think I was um I was very much on Red Bull that, that those couple of days, Red Bull and sleeping pills to sort of work out the timeline. But um no, it was it was all sort of just really strange the like coming into a test match it it, because of everything that went on and everyone was quite down it it didn't feel like a test match so I was I felt my job coming over was to try and make sort of like the guys that I was quite close to like those and Kawajas and all them feel like distract them a little bit about because they've been through hell for the last two weeks which I wouldn't wouldn't wish on anyone, but um, I was just trying to distract them and and make them feel feel a bit better and and have the sort of fresh face. And the most beautiful part of the whole thing is that you are there playing in the test when Chad Sayers makes his debut. Oh, you, you're finally allowed to wear that kit, mate. Good on you. <laughs> no, well, he did nick AB de Villiers off on the inside edge after working him over three overs. So it's <laughs> a good callback. Uh, one thing that we skipped over there was uh, you were, I mean, that training session wasn't any old training session, was it? It was uh, you're in the sheds and you're told that Darren Lehman's no longer going to be coaching the side. And I don't think anyone really expected that because Lehman had made it clear to us the day before that he was going to be the man who would lead the cultural change going forward. And, you know, there was a degree of contrition shown at that press conference and within 24 hours, he's pulling the pin. You must have been like, as you said before, exhausted uh, and now hearing this massive news, I, I expect it was quite an emotional change room that morning as well. Yeah, that was that was pretty full on. I don't think anyone was really expecting it. Um, remember, sorry, I just, <laughs> he's just pulled a packet of chips out. <laughs> um, I can't eat them though, it'll come through on the microphone. Sorry, I got distracted there. Um <laughs> You could you could hear us opening beers on the podcast we did in Joburg. So this is all staying in, Jeff. This is all staying in. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> Please I'm, I'm trying to eat the chips off Mike because, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to... <laughs> treat people to the full sensory experience. Yeah, so no one really expected that <laughs> Gav, the manager, walks out of... I think they went out in the front and walks back in and obviously looks pretty pretty emotional and so all of us are starting to think about what was going on and then he obviously told the news and that sort of made it feel a bit bit weirder as well. Like we were all preparing for a test match, um, didn't have three of the guys who was there bef- the test before. We got three new guys and, and the coaches just resigned. It's sort of this really weird feeling before a test match. And it was like extra security measures taken. You had your phones confiscated from memory as well so that the news wouldn't break before it got out through official channels. Like it's a pretty intense environment. It mustn't have been even remotely like your first experience as a test cricketer to one you were walking into in Johannesburg. Yeah, we, we got up, we went on the bus and the security guy wanted our phones and we were sort of like, this is a bit, bit strange. Like, we've never had this done before, especially with Buff Coach. Um, and then it all happened and I think everyone just sort of, that training session was just sort of trying to enjoy themselves. We played a, a good couple of games and then had a net session, which was which was weird, but I think I was I was still half asleep at that point, which is, I can't remember much of that test match. Like, people talking to me about it, um, I think we fielded for a long time, but I, I can't remember how long. I, I didn't make many runs and then flew home. But you didn't make many runs, but I think, Jeff, I think you and I both wrote about Matt that week with respect to his fielding, about how you were throwing yourself around in the field. The impression we got anyway was that you probably weren't going to ever make many runs in that circumstance given um, what you'd just been through through the last three or four days on, on commute and exhaustion and so forth, but you were trying to make a contribution in other ways and, uh, and, and make your mark known. Is that why you were racing around on, on the sweeper boundary and just seemingly man-possessed at, at different points through the course of that afternoon? I think that's just because I've, I, when I first came in, I was at first slip and no one really saw me move. Um, so everyone keeps saying, like, now, where, where's this fielding come from? Like, I've, I've probably got a little better at moving and, and I've got a lot fitter, but I didn't feel like I'd, I was that bad. I was just in first slip and no one really saw me. But, mm. um, no, it's just... One, I just try and enjoy my fielding and, and diving around is quite fun and, and just trying to do my job for the team. So you had a ripper season at Somerset in county cricket. You come forward to that UAE tour, that test tour, and it's really odd when you look at it because you look at Joe Berg and you've got the the four guys who come in to the to the 11 and to the squad as replacements in Maxwell, Hanscom, Burns, yourself – None of you are playing in that UAE series. You're all in that Joe Berg, Maxie's in the squad and the three, other three of you are in the 11. And then when the UAE comes around, uh, none of you made that 11. Was, how much of a surprise was that? Um, uh, you know, but w- w- what did you think sizing up before that series was going to happen? Well, I think if I didn't get hit in the head, I think I would have played. Um, getting hit in the head, that was probably my worst worst concussion if I'm honest with the um mm. with that one I, I I think the ball before I remember um he was quite quite a short bloke and wasn't really hitting them um like wasn't sweeping wasn't hitting them very far and and Lions bowling quite well I'm going okay I'm going to take a step up like I I took a half well what I felt was a step was probably about five centimeters um and then next ball's dragged down, pull shot, and I'm just standard. You just duck, and it's hit me in the head, and I'm sort of trying to work out where I am. I'm hearing, like it was slow motion, hearing someone say "catch it." I was like, yeah. "How are they going to catch it?" Like it's hit me in the head, and then um, Painty like climbed over me to take the catch, and 
then I sort of half remembered that you could take a wicket with a helmet below now. Um, and so I was sort of like half dazed and half like celebrating. I was like, do we get a wicket? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like oh, sweet. And then I stood up, <laughs> I stood up and I was like, oh, this is, this is not great. Um, and I was trying to like, I wanted, obviously want to play that game on where very close to batting. I'm trying to like work it out and, get better and then Uzi came up to me he's like mate we want like are you alright you can bat like trying to sort of make me feel like I was alright and I I just was so oblivious to everything um, went and lied down for I think half an hour and I just like head was just ringing it's a bit of an occupational hazard getting hit in the head being an opening batsman at the highest level and, and fielding in close as well uh, how many times have you been concussed now? um Four, I think. Four. Two short leg and then two not on a cricket field. As in? Two were, like, one was in a warm-up. We were right, playing a right. game and I got kneed in the side of the head, which was frustrating. He pulled out of shield game there. Right. Um, and then the other one was when I was young, um, when I was in the MPS, I was walking yeah. under a a viewing area and I lifted my head and hit Gosh. it on concrete. It, it sounds like Will Bukowski, you got um, he, one, of, one of his concussions was hit on the side of a door, another one at a football tackle, one at the non-striker's end in an adjacent net when a ball came flying out and clobbered him on the side of the head as well. I mean, it, it does reach a point where it becomes a problem, but I assume you're not in that category where that Will's been in the last couple of years. No, I think I'm... I just keep getting hit in, at short leg. Like, <laughs> the, the, one, the ones at short leg are obviously... You, you just can't really help. You're at short leg and you've either got the, the option of ducking that way or ducking and, and potentially getting hit in the back of the head. But um, no, I'm happy that it's getting me on the helmet. Notwithstanding the fact you got hit in the head in, in, in a warm-up game uh, or in, a, in an A game, um, there was a strong emphasis before that tour on cricketers that made plenty of hundreds. And I think by that point you had 10 first-class hundreds or something like that in near enough to... 45 or 46 games of first class cricket so on that metric we all just kind of assumed you were going to play and then you didn't and then to be relatively crude about it right in front of us you got absolutely smashed um you know fielding drill the day before the dubai test match no one missed it we're all right there watching what was going on you were worked to exhaustion uh and then stories started to come out in the couple of days after that none of this was coincidental the suggestion being that You'd fallen foul of decision makers at some point along the line in the space of the few days you'd been together as a team, and, and that was all related. What was going on there? Nothing. I just had to do a, a fielding te- a fielding session with with Hads, and, and obviously in Dubai it's it's pretty hot, and trying to trying to make make sure that I'm I'm still working hard as someone who um, as someone who wasn't playing the next day, I knew yeah. I wasn't playing at that point, so I wanted to try and, and work hard and, and have a, a, a good fielding session, and, and I think I did one two days later as well, so it wasn't yeah. like it was a, a one-off, I was still um, doing that, and, and having JL there, is, he's obviously big on fitness, and, and we were trying to work on, on the fitness side as well, and, and make it a bit more relatable rather than just doing some, some run-throughs. So, so in that case, was it frustrating for you being in the team camp, seeing some stories out there um, that were sort of hinting at there being some discord? It wasn't spe- specified, but it was kind of alluded to, and that there was some disconnect between you and you and the coach. That, that wasn't the perspective you were coming from? Yeah, I remember my, my manager and, and my dad sort of messaged me one night and just said, have you seen this? And, and it was an article about that me and JL had fallen out, and I was sort of 
had no idea where this had come from. I sent it through to the the media media guy and said, "What's what's going on here? Like, there's nothing, nothing I know of that that this is true." But um, no, it's it's frustrating having that sort of rumor thrown out there when it, it was all all fine. It, does, in in situations like that, do you feel like you want to get up in front of the cameras and go, "Come come here." Come here, guys. I just want to tell you that what's in the paper today isn't right, or you know, you've been given a bum steer, or, or something like that. Is there a temptation? Because I mean, until now, that people probably just assume that is is the is is an accurate recollection of what was going on at the time. Yeah, it was. It was really frustrating. Um, but then I sort of try to relate it back to you. Look at I, I'm quite a avid golfer, and I love following golf. And and you look at some reports of like, oh, he's not a great person. Like mm-hmm. reports of some golfers, and, and then you sort of have to go, ah. Oh, it's the reports, but is it actually true? Like you have to sort of take everything with a grain of salt that that comes out in the media, and, and that's probably the lesson I've learned over the, the last year. I remember part of what Justin was saying was that they couldn't pick you because you hadn't played a lot of Red Bull cricket recently, um, and that was before the first test. But then when the second test was coming up, obviously you hadn't played the first test, so you'd played even less Red Bull cricket <laughs> recently. Um, it puts you in a bit of a paradox situation that like, you're still in the squad, but you've basically almost been guaranteed that you can't play in the second match. Yeah, that was... Um, I'd missed a couple of games in India for slightly twinge my hammy and so I missed the first Red Bull game over there and then probably got the best ball ever no, that's a that's a big call one of the best <laughs> balls I've faced in in the second ball of the century for I think I got a first ball of the second the second te- uh second four day at first ball like swung in nipped away bowled me I was like okay like and then I got a couple of I think I got 30 odd in the second innings and then flew over to Dubai and, and was training really well felt really good about my game and I was ready to, to bat in that four-day practice match and, and got in the head and, and just missed out. And then knowing that you miss out because you've not played enough cricket and then the second test coming up, you're sort of just sitting there like twiddling your thumbs, just like, if there's an injury, are they going to go with me? Um, that sort of thing if someone pulls up sore. Um, but then left early, um, played a grade game and, and it was just nice to go back into grade cricket, play cricket and... And then scored 100 in that game, which was was nice to get back in the runs as well. It wasn't the only runs you made in grade cricket. Probably the, the most that was spoken about you last year really was the triple ton in grade cricket. Such a rare thing to occur in, in a club game, making a, a triple hundred in a day. But in professional cricket, um, that roller coaster from 17, 18 almost starts again. Like deja vu, it must have felt like having a being on trial for for a test spot before the start of the India series and having another lean period. Um, it must have been terrible to have that happen to you at the worst possible time for the second summer in a row. Yeah, well, I, th- I got a I got an eighty nine against WA at, at AB and and one just rolled and and got out. If I, f- I felt like if I hadn't have got out then, I, f- I felt like I was going to get a really big score. But yep. just one of those things in cricket that you can't really plan for too much in the future. And, and I was hoping for for the Indian series, but sort of didn't stars didn't really align for that. But it was sort of another one of those years where I learnt loads and, and trying to work out the, the best way for me to, to go about my cricket. I wanted to ask your perspective on the concept of form because I feel like when people watch cricket, they talk about form all the time. Like someone makes two or three low scores in a row and they say, oh, he's out of form. But to me, it seems like luck is a much bigger part of things. Like most batsmen are going to fail, say, three times out of four. You know, that's just... The generally the way the game goes, you don't t- tend to make big scores more than maybe a quarter of the time. So, 
you can easily have five or six or eight or nine or ten innings in a row where you don't make big runs. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're in bad form. It just means that chances are that you're not going to make big runs all the time and sometimes you might make a few big scores back-to-back and sometimes you'll have some low ones back-to-back. Um, how does it feel as, as a batsman? Are, are there times when you know that you actually have a form problem and, and then times when you're just having a, a bad run of fortune rather than a bad run of form? I think there's there's times where there's maybe you're not batting the way you should be batting in, in your technique and your game and then there's times where you're, you're doing everything right and then you just nick one and that you w- might have played, as I spoke about, before I got picked, I think I played a miss at 100 Chad Sayers ball. If I'd nicked one of them, I probably wouldn't have played the test next week. Mm. So I think that's something that I've, I've drawn on, like talking to people, is that some days you're going to nick them, some days you're not, and that's just the way that cricket is. It's such a really small small margins game that you need to sort of keep a, a level head on that. And if, if you start thinking about form, then you probably are out of form because you're you're thinking, not thinking about cricket, you're thinking about how you're do- doing personally. The immediate focus last year when you made those runs for Somerset, 300s in five games, and including a, a century in a session as it happened after having observed David Warner do the same a couple of years earlier, I don't think anyone in cricket would have expected you to be able to bat like that on morning one of a game on a green top. So, you know, the, the idea that you'd play in this 2019 Ashes was quite strong, that they'd, they'd find a way to, you know, play in these conditions where you, you had done quite well. Um, but you're not in the Australia A squad and you're finishing up at Kent next week after the next championship game. So the window you've got to um, somehow get yourself back in that consideration or that conversation before the first test in August is a relatively narrow one. Um, have you thought much about that or have you had much communication coming your way about what you might be able to do to be a bit of a smoky for that squad? Um, I think they just they spoke, spoke to me and said that runs in county cricket would would count and and I've I think I've got 100 and and a couple of 40s and and that so it's probably more one day cricket that I've been able to sort of put my name forward for in in the yeah. in the time I've had here but um, no I'm not thinking too much about that I'm just trying to enjoy enjoy life really and and having the the pressure of the constant pressure of y- yourself saying I want to play the Ashes I want to play the Ashes you. You sort of forget about why you play cricket, and and so I've tried to make sure this year I'm I'm not thinking too much about the the future and and just worrying about enjoying my my life and my cricket. It's quite an interesting perspective, Jeff, isn't it? Really, that after Matt's been able to have this success as a young man, and now we've talked about the roller coaster a couple of times, but at a, at a point of it now where it is probably unlikely you'll play in the Ashes, that it does liberate you to. Um, enjoy the day-to-day more than being too focused on something that is seemingly unattainable at this point in time yeah definitely and and being able to go home and and have a, a big pre-season with Queensland and and just try and just get back to thinking about playing games for Queensland that was that was how I got into the Australian side and and when Queensland were winning that's how we we started getting it a lot of guys into the squads but um now it's just about going home and enjoying the the time I have at home as as you can probably speak to some of the the really big dogs about their time away from home and how it's very very minimal you've got to enjoy that time at home as well yeah I guess removing a deadline is liberating in in any sort of field and of course it's it's basically a cliche but we all know that pretty much every great cricket has been dropped as a younger player at some point and have their struggles and learn more and bounce back there's literally every time someone gets dropped everyone gets dropped 
Like you're not going to go through your whole career and, and stay in the same team that you started in or you got promoted to. You're going to get dropped, you're going to get injured, you're going to miss out a few times and, and it's about enjoying the, the going back part and, and enjoying the, the, the game of cricket because so many, so many kids come through the, the ranks enjoying cricket and then they get into this professional environment and think, oh, I've got to change what I'm doing but you've still got to enjoy the cricket at the end of the day is that something that comes back to you the other way as well you talked about the phone call they gave you was that uh, when they announced the squads was it that um that the selectors got in touch or trevor Holmes got in touch to tell you where you were at is is that a, a relatively common occurrence with someone like you who's had success young and they know that you're always being talked about through an international prism it's not like someone who's like 31 and might have played four years ago you're 23 and played just last year and, and the expectation is that you will again. When these squads come out and these teams are picked, do they, do they get on the phone and go, look, it's under control, you just got to do this or, or is it that you might go months and months without hearing from them? No, when they, they announce it, they go, yeah, you've, you've not scored enough runs and for me, it's always been the the runs part of it has been the reason I've missed out, which... Yep. Which at, at one thing is is probably a positive. It, it's just probably one or two scores away from from being back in the mix. And then the other is, if I'd have scored runs, I would have been in there. And you can't you can't think like that because then you get too much concentrating on the past rather than the the present. How have you dealt with it coming into the spotlight as such a young guy? You know, twenty years of age when you're playing that first test, and suddenly you've got. It seems like everybody in the country wants to have an opinion on how you're doing your job, uh, how you're going about it, who you are, what you're about, all the rest of it. Not many people at that age have that sort of ferocity of spotlight on them. How did you cope with that and um, and how does it how does it feel looking at it with a couple more years under your belt? Yeah, everyone seems to have an opinion on me, whether that's um, what they've seen on, on TV or if they actually know me. And, and that's why I've tried to keep everyone that everyone I meet I try and have a, a good a good opinion of obviously but I, I know that if the people who are really close to me are, are happy with me then that's that's really important for me um obviously got a really tight tight group of friends away from sort of the the domestic and and that sort of spotlight which is nice going back and and playing club cricket with them and and spending a bit more time with them this year has been been probably a, a silver lining against the sort of the the bad part of of not playing for Australia, but um no, it's it's obviously tough having people have form opinions of you that you don't know. But me being true to myself, um, trying to keep the, keep that going, and and I think this year so I've I've learnt to do a lot more um meditation and that sort of thing. Trying to when the when the noise of the outside gets too too big worrying about just worrying about myself that seems to be quite common in the australian change room there's a lot more guys who are relying on meditative processes and mindfulness as a, as a means of keeping an even keel is that something you picked up in, in that environment or an influence inside the professional game over here what's the origin story um i think we, you go through it when you're in the academy you start doing it a little bit and and you sort of think oh, i'm not sure if i'll really need this but um talking to a few of the guys they they do it quite a lot i know will pakovsky obviously has gone through a lot and i'm quite close with him and and just talking to him about some of his experiences has been really helpful as someone who i feel quite young he's younger than me and and his maturity of of all this sort of stuff is is real testament to him and and what he's gone through has been quite tough as well so i try and draw on that you're about to go and enjoy some time away 
on the continent over in, in Europe on holiday. You must be thrilled to get out of the, the cricket bubble altogether and be completely anonymous uh, over in Europe for a bit. Yeah, it's going to be nice. Got a week away before I, I head back to Australia for, for pre-season. So going to France and, and Belgium and then maybe tr- a few other countries just trying to trying to organise it all now, which is as exciting as, as someone who I've been playing cricket for like the last three Three years straight, I'd say. Um, it's nice to get a holiday out, and I think that keeps the keeps the missus happy. Do it the old-fashioned way. Put a backpack on and get the URL pass and just go from country to country. Don't worry about any of these p- posh hotels. I'm sure you'll enjoy it more that way. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Matthew Renshaw, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you in this more relaxed environment here at the Kent County Cricket Club. Congratulations on what you've achieved so far, and thank you so much for joining the final word. Thank you for having me. I'm Daniel Borkros, and you're listening to The Final Word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is the final word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you to Matthew Renshaw, even though he hasn't done anything for us lately. What have you done for us lately, Matt? But a year ago, he did give us that interview. He was a very entertaining young man, and it was nice to chat to him, Adam. Yeah, and I suppose the fact that that interview was recorded 16, 17 months ago, and we've seen the Renshaw roller coaster continue in that in that fashion, really. Uh, and let's hope for his sake that he's able to have a consistent season with Queensland and with the heat in the Big Bash and at club level as well where he's been so prolific. I know they started Queensland grade cricket a a couple of weeks ago but a player of such immense ability uh, and was showed that at such a young age you know breaking through at 20 as a test player not many cricketers can do that so we know he can perform for Australia it's just a matter of him stringing together the consistent performances I've seen that he's um, got engaged during the uh, lockdown period which is lovely there's a nice feature in uh, the Q magazine I think it was which came out at some point during the pandemic uh, earlier in the pandemic which explained how um, he, he saw that as a good opportunity to make that life commitment and uh, you know very excited about having a fresh season to embark upon so uh, good luck to Matthew Renshaw and yeah, as you say Jeff uh, we, we were very grateful way back when to have his time Look, as a Queenslander, I can only say that uh, you know Matthew Renshaw is our is our bright light, our, our shining hope, and and all of us in the Sunshine State uh, hope that his career <laughs> blossoms into what it should be and can be. Uh, we're going to take a, a few days without podcasting, given we're podcasting every other day at the moment. Uh, we are going to have next week our interview with Alison Mitchell that we secretly conducted and didn't tell you about yet. But it will be coming up. It's in the editing suite as we speak, uh, and that'll be out, what, Tuesday or Wednesday, something thereabouts. We don't like to lock ourselves in too much on the final word. Uh, the show is brought to you by Bad Producer Productions. It is edited each and every episode by David Collins, and uh, it is made possible by everybody on Patreon. Thank you to all of you so much who support the show. To Seba Super and to Lords Taverners this week for supporting what we're doing. Uh, the Isolate campaign I mentioned before is very important. All the information is in the show notes and we're proud to be associated with an organisation um, who are doing it tough at the moment but have done such great things over seven decades. And as ever, those of you who can rate or review the show or pass it on to your friends, loved ones, enemies even, we don't care. We don't care what your relationship with them is like. Just, uh, you know, improve their lives. Or if you think the show is terrible, send it to your enemies so it will ruin their lives. Your motivations are not ours to judge. Uh, we'll be back in a few days. This has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Story time. We'll see you. Bye. I had to go about-